White Rocket Entertainment. Forensics finally released this. What is it? Personal effects they recovered from Skyfall. You've got a secret. Something you can't tell anyone. Because you don't trust anyone. I always knew death would wear a familiar face. But not yours. Ah! I was at a meeting recently and your name came on. Unflattered London are still talking about me. It wasn't MI6. You are a kite dancing in a hurricane, Mr. Bond. Welcome, James. It's been a long time. And finally, here we are. White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 455. Hello and welcome to On Her Majesty's Secret Podcast, the White Rocket Entertainment James Bond Podcast. Brought to you by White Rocket Entertainment and by all of our great supporters and friends via Patreon.com. I'm Van Allen Plexico, and I'm joined as always for our series reviewing the 24 Eon Bond films, and then we're going to do more stuff after that when we're done, we were just talking about. Joined as always by my co-host, Alan J. Porter. Welcome back aboard, Alan. Thank you, Van. So back in, I looked it up, December 2017, you and I had a conversation where we said, you know what? I think we could do something where we review one Bond movie each month and just squeeze in the 24 between before No Time to Die or Bond 25 comes out. And thanks to Eon very kindly slipping <laughs> the movie out a couple months here and there, we made it. We here made we are, it. Bond 24. Unbelievable. Um, I, I hoped we'd do it. There was times I never thought we would get to the end, but here we are, <laughs> the last Bond movie. It's awesome. I'm so proud of us. I am too. Yeah, I'm gonna say there. There were times that you're like, oh, "Am I ever gonna get over this? Get through this with him?" <laughs> but no, you have. You have survived doing two straight years of monthly shows with me. In addition to our other stuff, right? We've squeezed in some racing shows here and there, and uh, we reviewed um, Grand, Grand Prix, and we're gonna review uh, Ford versus Ferrari really soon. I've already bought it on video. I'm ready to watch it again. Get get it after a set in theater. So we've got a lot going on, but yeah, we've made it through the first 23, and tonight we cap off all the ones that are out up until now. Alan, it really is hard to imagine that there have been exactly two Bond films in the last 
12 years. What the heck? I, I know. It's crazy, isn't it? Absolutely yes. crazy. That Yeah, it just boggles my mind, really, that uh, it's taken so long for this this Craig cycle of movies to, to come to fruition. It really is absolutely crazy. He's been, get this, get this. All right, he's been Bond longer than anybody else in terms of yep. just the time, and yet he's done, up until the one that comes out you know, in, in April, he's done four, right? Yep. In all that time, he's done four. And I don't blame him necessarily, but it's just he's done four Bond movies in all that time. And get this, I was just asking my wife, I said, are you going to... Um, are you going to want to go see the new one with me? And she's like, well, I might as well. I've seen all of them. And we were like, you know what? Our first movie we ever went to see when we first started dating was Casino Royale. I said, wow. I said, <laughs> I said, you and I have been together one Daniel Craig, James Bond era. <laughs> That's how long. That's crazy. Yes, because our daughter is in sixth grade. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that insane? It is. It is absolutely crazy. Crazy. Yeah. And yet it's all meant to be one nice continuous story, but we'll get to that. Um, (laughs) He's, he is, he, I'm not exactly sure how old you are and that's your business, but Daniel Craig is within like a month of me age wise. And so he's, he's a little younger than I am. Yeah. Okay. Well, it just, it always strikes me as weird that like the older I get, the more I feel like, how is this guy still Bond? Because <laughs> I couldn't be Bond. How is he still Bond? You know, he's he's closing in on uh, on Roger Moore there. If he was going to do another one, if he did another one and it took this long, he would be beating out Roger Moore. Now he doesn't. Yeah, and he's, he doesn't he's look been, that. But yeah, and he's been past the uh, official retirement age uh, age for double O's for quite a while now. Most of his so, movies, yeah, yeah. yeah. So. Well, um, we've got one tonight, don't we? We do. We do. So, I actually, I actually said to uh, to Jill this evening. I said I, I could make this the shortest podcast for the longest movie. <laughs> it is long. You know, I was going to say this one seems like a long movie because I watched like the first hour of it yesterday, and I had to pause it. And when I paused it, it brought up the little bar to show you how much time you know. Uh-huh. And I'm like an hour and a half. <laughs> Because it was like I watched over an hour, and it still said I had an hour and a half to go. And I'm like, this is long. Yeah, it is. It is the longest Bond movie. Uh, official running time is two hours, 28 minutes. So, yes, it, well, it's, it's a long one. Not not to go into any details yet. We're going to. But I feel like this one had to be long. And honestly, I don't think it was as long. I don't think it was long enough. Now, you may really? completely... <laughs> I, d- I don't think it was. No, because I think that this movie... And again, I'm, I'm going go into more details about why and everything in a minute. I think this movie either needed to be like Lord of the Rings length in terms of one of their movies, or it needed to be two movies. Because my problem with it, and I have fewer problems now than I did. I got a lot to say, Alan. I'm sure you got a lot to say, and that's fine. You'll get your chance, and I'll get my chance. But I've got a lot to say about this movie tonight. But I felt like the problem, the main problem, I had had maybe... I used to have about 100 problems with it. I got over about 97 of them this time through. We're going to talk about it. But one of the few remaining problems I have with this movie is that the first hour and 45 minutes of it are very leisurely. The pace is very slow but steady, and I like it. It's not a bad slow pace. But the first hour and 30, 45 minutes of this movie are there they it's a slow burn it's a slow build it's a build 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 the problem is when it gets to the big reveal and the big moment where it should kick into gear 
it's really revealing that you've that everything you've seen up to that point is just a setup, is just the prologue, and now you're getting the actual movie, and that leaves them like 40 minutes to do the whole rest of the movie, and it's just not enough. I needed this movie to I needed the first hour and 45 minutes of this movie to be part one. And then a part two that was much longer than the last 40 minutes of this movie. Because I just feel like I feel like they took their sweet, blessed time for the first three quarters of the movie, and then they just went way too fast with the last quarter. Now, that's, that's not an overall judgment on the movie. I've got a lot to say about how I felt about the movie overall. I'm just, in terms of pacing and what they tried to cover in this one movie, I really felt strongly that they needed to make it three and a half hours long or make it two two-hour movies. Your reaction? I get your point. I don't necessarily agree with you, but I get your point. It, mm. it was very unevenly paced. And I think actually the first, as you put it, leisurely paced of the first hour to two hours of it yeah. is actually my underlying problem with it. So I'm going to go straight to, because I hinted at it last week, and I, I, I need to sort of put this in context. Okay. This is my bottom of my list. This is number 24 on my list. Wow. Boom. Okay. We had the soundboard from the football show. I'll give you all kinds of sound effects right now. <laughs> but why is it the bottom of my list? Because for me, it, co- it commits the gravest sin of any movie. I found it boring. Wow. I didn't, couldn't care less about it one way or the other. So you're not going to get a two-hour rant from me about everything that was wrong with it like you did with Skyfall. <laughs> We caught a lot of flack for that, by the way, just so you know. We, we did. Thank you for everybody who responded. That was really good fun. People, um, people, yeah, people care, and they appreciate people, the movie, and they appreciate hearing what we thought about it. And, I, and that's, that's, that's I, and complimentary. The re- and the, re- the reason you got a two-hour rap from me was because I did care. Because exactly. like, the first time I watched Sky, Skyfall, I enjoyed it, and every time I watched it, I found more and more things wrong with it. Right. The problem with Spectre is I really just don't care about it. Um Okay. Uh, just as you were talking about the fact you had to pause it sort of in the middle of rewatching it f- to do this show, I did the same thing. I actually watched it over three nights. The thing is, Jill actually had to remind me that I hadn't finished watching it. <laughs> and I needed to go finish watch it to finish off my notes because I paused it after the second night and it just slipped my mind. <laughs> this is the Bond movie I know the least about. I, I, I can't really recall a lot of the details unless I actually watch it. And it's the most recent Bond movie. Mm-hmm. It should be the one freshest in my mind, and it isn't. So mm-hmm. for me, the reason it is the bottom is really because it just doesn't engage me. And I think a lot of it is, yes, it's got some plot points and stupid stuff, and we'll get to that. Mm-hmm. But really, I think a lot of it has to do with that really slow, leisurely pace there it starts off and by the time it does get to the reveal i'm so bored i don't care mm-hmm. yeah that's get, why it's bottom of my list so folks that. you will not get another two-hour rant oh, at least i don't think you will <laughs> uh, we'll see what happens so as I mean, it organically develops yeah but uh but yeah th- that's the difference why despite me right. ripping skyfall apart that skyfall isn't the bottom is because i cared about skyfall i was right. emotionally involved in it and it disappointed me this one not so much not so much i I've, i got a a couple of things. One, we always have to put our disclaimer now because, again, I, I, it means a lot to me when people listen to our shows and have feedback for us. That means a lot. It means they care enough to say something, and that's fine, and we appreciate it. Positive, negative, whatever. We appreciate it. 
And I just want to point out, as we always do, and Jared is very good, our, our co-host on a lot of these shows, Jared Albrick, the art seller, he's very good about always reminding us, because sometimes I forget this, he's very good about reminding us that we love them all to some degree or another. They're James Bond. Of course we love them. This is yeah. all relative, and, 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 and you have to have it in the right perspective, right? This is all relative to, to each other is how we're comparing these. Right. I mean, it's of the 24 movies, and as you said, it's all... But I, I mean, I'm sat in a room literally surrounded by James Bond stuff. Right. On every shelf. It's like... <laughs> it's not like I hate James Bond. I don't. It's just of the 24, <laughs> this is the one that engaged me the least. Right. Which is well, why it's bottom of the list. Let it me... It doesn't mean that I dislike Bond or... Oh, of course not. Yeah. No. I think I think people understand that, right? Okay, but I want to just make sure that we we've stated that. Okay, so don't don't get us hate mail that we're mean to James Bond because this is all relative. Okay. I gotta tell you now, I'll give you my rating and I'll tell you how it moved and I'll tell you um I I'm I've been all afternoon I've been trying to decide why it moved. So let me let me approach that because I had a very different reaction to watching it this time than I did in the theater or on video like the first time back in 2015 2016. Very different. I haven't watched I watched it like I watched it in the theater once. I watched it when it came out on video. I got it on Apple. I got it on Apple, you know, immediately and got it in my library and I watched it again when Mira and I were doing our, you know, watching the, some of our movies, some of the Bond movies. But that was like 15, 16, 17 at the latest. So I haven't watched it in like 3 years. And I had a very different reaction to it this time, and the more I think about it, I think I kind of understand two reasons, two big reasons why my opinion of it changed. First, I currently had it coming into to, to this week, I had it number 20. I had it better than Skyfall by one, and then License to Kill, Octopussy, and A View to a Kill, which are my absolute bottom of the barrel. So I had it number 20. After watching it again this after you know yesterday and today, I absolutely meant to move it up, and I've been trying to figure out how high it's moving up. It's definitely moving past 19, The Living Daylights. It's definitely moving past number 18, The Man with the Golden Gun. It's currently banging into Die Another Day. Now, I know that everybody out there hates Die Another Day. I know it's very popular and politically correct to hate on Die Another Day, but remember, Die Another Day has two things I like. The whole beginning of the movie is great until it kind of goes down the fantasy toilet. But the whole first half of that movie is is a great Pierce Brosnan Bond movie, and I hate to move it past that. And number two, it's a Pierce Brosnan Bond movie. I hate to move it past that. I hate to put Craig ahead of of, of if I don't have to. But so it, and then Quantum of Solace at sixteen. I can't say I like it better than a lot of Quantum of Solace. So right now it's hovering around a tie for seventeen with Die Another Day. Somewhere in there is where it's going to end up. I thought it would even go up higher than that, but that's where it is now. All right. Here's that what actually seems in line with 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 what the majority of people put it. I mean, I, really? Yeah. See, just looking across all the various rating platforms, it seems to get a sixty to seventy percent approval rating, which I think would probably put it somewhere around where you've got it. Where where do you, where is it where does it sit on your um, the list you always read me? Oh, the definitive list. Well, it doesn't because that definitive list was done <laughs> in the run up to spec. Uh, okay. Two spectators, so it's not on the list. But here, so here. because because it wasn't, I went out and looked at all the other rating sites, and it comes in generally around a, a sixty to seventy percent approval. So, okay, here's here's um, how I remember the reviews of it coming out. I remember that the British reviews came out first, and it was doing pretty well. The British reviewers liked it better than average. 
And then the American reviews started coming out, and they were much harsher on it. Now, what do you think about that? You have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I, your memory is correct. I think it was there was there was a definite, certainly in the early days, a very definite difference between the uh, the UK the initial UK reviews and the initial uh, American reviews. Um, so again, I'm I'm not quite sure why, um, mm. but uh, it, it did seem to resonate differently for different audiences, which is interesting because that doesn't normally happen as with as much diversion as we seem to yeah. see on this one. Yeah. Well, that was c- kind of my thought at the time, and this may be just completely BS, but I just wonder if you, your perspective on it, kind of having a different perspective from mine for sure, is it could it be that coming off the glow of Skyfall and the 50th anniversary, and remember I talked to you last, last episode about how it seems like British media makes a much bigger deal out of anniversaries than American media does. American media just kind of goes, oh, it's the whatever anniversary, whoop to who Whereas British stuff like Doctor Who and Skyfall just had like year long these giant, you know, events and commemorations and everything. And there was the Olympics with Bond and everything. It just seemed like a much bigger deal. And and so I was thinking that maybe that glow from twelve was still hanging around in fifteen. And he's and you know, and he's British. He's he he belongs to the UK. And they were just a little better disposed toward this movie, maybe. Whereas the American reviewers, having no emotional investment or no concern whatsoever, just looked at it purely dispassionately and said, "Nah, didn't love it." You know. I actually think the the gap may have something to do with it, and this will be interesting to see if we get this effect on No Time to Die. Mm-hmm. Um, is that I think the a long gap in between a Bond movie in the UK builds up that anticipation. Because mm-hmm. it is such a part of the culture. It's like, guys, we all grew up with Bond. It's 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 you know embedded in the culture. Sure. It's like, oh, great! There's another Bond. You know, you know. Oh, it's been a it's been a long time, but we're getting another one, and it's coming, and it's coming, and it's coming, and oh, it's finally here, and we. And as opposed to the US, where it's like, oh my god, it's been three years since the last one. Do we really care anymore? It's <laughs> amazing. Yeah. Um, all right. So it'll be interesting to see if we get that sort of effect. Uh, you know. With, with the new one. Yeah. Well, let's watch and let's pay attention. All right. The last thing I'm going to say, and, we, and then we can do into what, get into it however you want, but I, th- to me, this is the interesting part anyways when we're talking about how we kind of approach it and what we thought about it, how we changed it and all that. So the last mm-hmm. thing I wanted to say to kind of finish out my thoughts was th- I told you I was trying to think of why my opinion changed and why I raised it some. Yeah. And I think there's two reasons. And as always, I'm always interested in your reaction to when I think of these things. Okay. So, because I have no idea if I'm crazy or not. And I kind of rely on you to tell me if that makes sense or if it doesn't or whatever. <laughs> okay. So, there's, there's two, I think there's two things that happened. The, sh- the smaller one is that, honestly, the trailer for Spectre for me almost ruined the movie because they showed everything in the trailer. You had no authority. None. Mexico City. What were you doing there? I was taking some overdue holiday. So what's going on, James? They say you're finished. What do you think? I think you're just getting started. Magnificent, isn't she? Zero to 60 in 3.2 seconds. A few little tricks up her sleeve. Do one more thing for me. What do you have in mind? Make me disappear. Tell me where he is. He's everywhere. 
You should go there. You're crossing over to a place where there is no mercy. You're protecting someone. Get away from me! Why should I trust you? Because right now, I'm your best chance of staying alive. This organization, do you know what it's called? Its name is Spectre. And do you know who links them all? Me. Welcome, James. You came across me so many times, yet you never saw me. What took you so long? Is this really what you want? Living in the shadows? Hunting? Being hunted? Always alone? I don't stop to think about it. It was me, James. The author of all your pain. They gave everything away in the trailer. Worse than almost any movie I can think of. And so when I saw the movie, I pretty much knew every big beat. And as you say, it's kind of, it's, since it's slowly paced through so much of it, it's like you're waiting, you're waiting, you're waiting. There's that big thing from the trailer. You're waiting, you're waiting. There's that big thing from the trailer. And so it's like what we didn't see in the trailer wasn't that big. And everything that was in the movie that was big, we'd already seen the trailer. And that, at the time, that was exciting. But when I look back now, I realize it really kind of, it kind of put a wet blanket on the whole movie because there weren't any big shocks and surprise. You know, Blofeld comes out. I'm Blofeld. I'm like, yeah, I know. You know, oh, there's a car chase. Yeah, I know. I already saw it in the in the trailer. You know, oh, there's all just like almost everything big that you'd want to get excited about when it's revealed in the movie. I'd already seen. Whereas watching it now, like three years later, I'd kind of forgotten all that and I could approach it with fresh eyes. And I'm like, oh, oh, that's cool. Oh, yeah. Oh, I remember that now. But yeah, I'd forgotten, you know. And so there was there were a lot of moments in it this time that I, that hit me the way I think they should have in 2015. And the trailer kept me from enjoying as much. So let me pause there, your reaction to that one, and then I'll do the other one. That's actually very interesting because I think you've just opened my eyes about something about the trailer. So but before we, that, we'll get back to okay. revealing things early. For me, again, one of the big problems with this movie is the title of it. Mm-hmm. Why the hell did they name the movie after the big reveal? <laughs> yeah. Star it's Wars Episode reveal. Five. I'm your father. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Pretty much. You talked about Doctor Who earlier. Doctor Who did it too in, or I think it was where the Christopher Eccleston one, when they had an episode called Dalek, and it's like, yes. well, guess that's... who the bad guy's going to be, guys? Um, <laughs> that's right. That's right. I remember that. Yeah. So, oh, you know, it's, I, I get they were excited about the fact that they had the rights to Spectre back mm-hmm. and they were going to use Spectre in a movie and, you know, mm-hmm. and everybody, you know, and that would be, be a big ooh. And it but made a great if, name. And it's a great name, but if that's going to be the big reveal at an hour into the movie that this evil organization is called Spectre, 
And by the way, I read today, it's not cap, cap or capitals, an acronym Spectre anymore. It's the word Spectre. Oh, um, okay. If, yeah, if that's, yeah, yeah. If, if, but if that's going to be the big reveal, don't make it the title of the movie because it doesn't become a big reveal. It's like, yeah. we know when we're sat there looking at Bond going, why doesn't he know who this is? We all know, you know, it's, it's, they're running around trying to figure it all out, but where's the audience now? Mm. I much prefer to find things out at the same time as characters do. Mm-hmm. I don't like being the omniscient and audience member. That, I want to be driven along. And the fact that right even before I sat down in the theatre, I knew what the big reveal was, mm-hmm. it sort of took that out of it. Absolutely. Now, yeah, no, that's yeah. and that leads into my second one. But but um, well, let me let me talk about the trailer a minute. Yes, please. Specifically mentioned it. So, you, I loved the trailer of this movie. I played this trailer over and over and over again. Exactly. I it was a really neat tra- exactly. trailer. Exactly. Lots, lots of great stuff in it, and it had the Honor Majesty Secret Service theme in there, and mm-hmm. you know these gorgeous shots and all mm-hmm. this action and stuff. And yeah, we all knew that. Oberhauser was going to be mm-hmm. Blofeld. I mean, that was like, duh. Um, that was almost as bad as the, the Khan reveal in the Star Trek. Yes, it was, a, it was about like, the yeah. same time. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we, you know. Um, but yeah, I loved the trailer. So the fact that, that it was so slow, it's like, hang on a minute. That's just not the movie I was expecting from the trailer. Mm-hmm. And I'd never thought about the fact that I was mentally sitting there twiddling my thumbs waiting for the next bit from the trailer. Exactly. I'd never really thought about it in those terms until you just mentioned it. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right. And, and again, I think that's one of the reasons that I found it boring was mm-hmm. because I was sort of wait, and I'm waiting for the bits that I know I want to see. And we got all this padding in between. So It's a case of a trailer being too good. Yeah, it was. It was a really good trailer. You, yeah. you, d- you know, the, the, I've always said, I've always said the the best trailer. I don't I don't mean in terms of the property, the franchise, the actors, nothing like that. Because obviously, you know, I you know Avengers and the Marvel stuff I'm going to love, or Lord of the Rings or whatever. But I mean, just in terms of just purely objectively as a trailer that makes me go, ooh, I want to see that. That was awesome. Let me rewatch this trailer a thousand times. That Spectre trailer was up there, but the one that yeah. to me is the one that to me is number one was the Prometheus trailer. The Prometheus trailer is so good that the movie wasn't great to start with, but compared to that trailer, the movie was terrible. And I remember thinking, I think I'm just going to go back and watch the trailer another dozen times rather than watching the movie again because the trailer was great. And this is another case where you you put all the good stuff in the trailer and you you leave an hour, you know, you leave two hours and 20 minutes for two hours, more than that, two hours and 28 minutes of not the trailer, you know, and it just doesn't doesn't quite fly. That's, well, yeah, that's actually another perfect example of a great trailer and a boring movie with con- ridiculous plot contrivances. So, yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, because the because yeah because the Prometheus trailer leaves all that out. You don't know why all the dumb stuff is happening. You just know the cool stuff is happening. You know what I mean? So yeah, you just see yeah. all the great. Yeah. Well, anyway, um, all right. My second. All right. So, so oh, what was your second reason? Second reason. Yeah. Second reason is. I think, and, and like you say, this is a, a big part of it goes back to them saying, it's Spectre. They made such a honking big deal out of it being the return, the glorious return to, of Spectre after all these years that I had, and then they gave us that great trailer, that I had weeks and months to build it up in my mind what I wanted it to be. And what I wanted it to be was all the greatest parts of the Connery 
Spectre movies and, and Lazenby, right? I thought, okay, it's 2015. They should be able to take all the best. Remember, before this movie came out, we weren't entirely sure it wasn't going to be like a shot-for-shot remake of Honor Majesty's Secret Service. I mean, there was some talk of that when they showed the bullet hole in the glass, you know, at the end of the trailer and everything. People were saying, you know, maybe this is just this is just Daniel Craig's Honor Majesty's Secret Service. There was talk of that. And so it was in my mind building up. I wanted Blofeld to do this and that. I wanted him to have the cat sitting in his lap. I wanted to have, I, I wanted, you know, the volcano base and everything. I wanted all that stuff the way I saw it in my mind. And when I watched the movie... I was like, you know, oh, there's the cat. Uh, you know, he just kind of wandered in for a scene. He picked him up, set him down. Whoop. Oh, look, there's a volcano. Well, it's kind of a meteor crater. It's just really just kind of a desert with some hills around it. And, uh, you know, and like, oh, he's Blofeld and he's going to be awesome because he's going to engineer this great. Now he's just going to get in a helicopter and get shot down. Uh, so in other words, I was comparing what was happening in this long yet relatively brief movie if that makes sense, to the movie I'd already filmed in my head and it just wasn't remotely measuring up and I was super disappointed. Now, I come back and watch it like three, four years later with all of that gone. Everything I built up in my head before I went to the theater that day in 15 is gone. And I just sit down and watch it as a Daniel Craig Bond movie and Alan, I kid you not, I enjoyed it so much more. And in fact, that first hour and a half, I would say, is great Bond. It is as good as Daniel Craig gets. It's up there with anything in Casino Royale and Quantum of Solace. That first hour and a half, even though it's slower paced, I give you that, is it's got great stuff in it. My problem, as we'll get into in the, in the play-by-play in a minute, is that they set so much great stuff up Kind of like Die Another Day. They set so much great stuff up in the first two-thirds of it, they just don't have the room, the space, the time to, to close it out the way I really wanted them to. But, you know, even this time, when it got about two-thirds of the way in, I even tweeted and I said, I'm loving the first two-thirds and I'm depressed knowing what's coming now. And, do you know, I, I enjoyed it. It wasn't the greatest ever. But I really enjoyed even the last part because this time I wasn't saying, you know, oh, I'm disappointed that it's not going this way. I'm not going, it's not going that way. This time I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And I was like, I don't know how else you would have done that, you know. And, and, and I know the movie had problems with the final act and they, that's well publicized. We can talk about that. But honestly, I had a hard time thinking of how they could have done some of the stuff any better even though it wasn't great. I feel like they kind of painted themselves into a story corner and they did about the best job they could at getting out. So so to, to kind of quickly summarize, I feel like I had a movie in my head in 2015 it didn't measure up to, but when I watched it with more of a blank slate in 2020, I enjoyed it a whole lot more. Now, your reaction to that? Um, yeah, I think it was definitely let down by the third act. Um, I think some they did set up some interesting things. Um, we'll get into why I think... Some of them didn't work yeah. in the first two thirds. Um, I, I'm glad you enjoyed it more the second time <laughs> this, this around. Like I said, I, I tried. I tried not to come at it with any preconceptions of, "Oh, this is the bottom of my, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to hate it." Because I didn't hate it, mm. um, but I didn't like it either. So, um, and like I said, the fact that I sort of forgot I was watching it <laughs> to me was another indication that it, you know, it wasn't really grabbing my attention. <laughs> um, it definitely has. Um, 
I like your die another day uh, analogy that Mm. in terms of, you know, it's setting, and I think everybody agrees it has real problems with the third act, Mm. but it does set up uh, some interesting things. Um, Some of those contrivances are a little silly. We'll get into those, but it doesn't really give itself the time to Mm. pick those up and go with them. I agree with you 100%. I think they wrote themselves into a corner um, story-wise. And I think there's a couple of things I probably would have done differently in the third act, but Mm. um, it, I think they wrote themselves into a into a corner. There were certain set pieces they wanted to get in, in terms of you know getting yeah. in the Guinness Book of Records for the biggest explosion on a, in a movie and blah blah blah. Yeah. Um, that again didn't really make much narrative sense, but they'd sort of promised themselves and their investors and God knows what else that <laughs> you know and did time in the logistics and stuff and planning that they were going to go do these set pieces that didn't really work, but then they had to work around them. So. Um, yeah, I, I sort of agree with you. Uh, again, I didn't necessarily enjoy it more this time around, but I'm glad you did. Um, so. I think that in addition to the set pieces you're talking about, yeah, I agree. Um, I feel like once again, just like with Skyfall, we talked a little bit about this before, we got some of that Mendez-itis where he just can't stop trying to duplicate stuff from the earlier movies. He just can't. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, there, there, there is a lot... Yeah, there's just there's just so, so many moments where you're like, dude, just tell your story. Stop trying to say, hey, look, I watched Live and Let Die, or I, you know, I watched, you know, whatever. We know you did. That's great. We all did. Tell this story. Stop trying to shoehorn in this car or this watch or this bit of dialogue or oh, they're on a train or you know, I mean, for goodness' sake. Yeah, it's actually one of the notes I have later on, but we can we can talk about it now. This one of the things that did get me about this movie is it is a retread of so many other things from so many other Bond movies. There's nothing in this movie that made me go, wow, I've never seen that before. Mm. Like every other movie, including Skyfall, has moments where it's like, that is so cool and so awesome, I've never seen anybody do that before. I didn't get that at all at any point in this movie. It was, what I was doing was what you just said, going, Oh, he's wearing the white tuxedo. Mm-hmm. Oh, he's doing this. Oh, mm-hmm. he's doing that. Oh, it's a fight on a train. Oh, it's this. It's yeah. the DB5. Oh, you know, it was like, it It was just so many little pieces of other movies that were in there um, that in some ways it felt more like the 50th anniversary movie to me than yes. Skyfall did yes. because there were so many references in it, which again slowed it down. As you said, rather than focusing in, I think this movie could have been condensed by 20 minutes easily. Um, but, um, so you think it needs to be shorter? I think it needs to be a lot longer because because but I think it needs to be shorter up at the front end. Yeah, and give the back end the back end more room to breathe. So. Yeah, because I felt like I needed to know a lot more about Mister Hinks. He comes on, does oh. a couple of things, is really cool, and then and then he's gone. And I'm like, well, he was a really interesting character. I mean, Odd Job got. Maybe not. Maybe not any more screen time, but he certainly f- seemed like he did. You know, Jaws got way more screen time. We we never learned any background about Jaws, but we certainly felt like we knew him to a certain degree. Mister Hinks is like on, and you're like, oh, he's interested. Oh, where'd he go? <laughs> you know, it's, just, it, it's it. Yeah, I mean, it's carrying on from the other Mendes movie from Skyfall, um, mm-hmm. where you've got these interesting characters who. Uh, appear for 10 minutes and then are gone and we never hear from them and we never learn about them and it's like i wanted to know more about them and we'll talk a bit more about them and hinks is one of them yeah Yeah. so yeah 
All right, so what shall we do first? That, that was good. Right. No, I, I'm glad we... That was kind of an extended opening for us, but this movie, I think, <laughs> called for it. I, this could be the longest podcast for the longest movie. Um, <laughs> um, so let's start where we usually start. Alignment to Fleming. So obviously... Um, the, the Spectre angle um, mm-hmm. is really, you know, they pulled mash, mash bits together from the Blofeld trilogy, the Fleming books, without directly referencing any of it, but it does pull pieces from here and there. Mm-hmm. Um, um, we get the nice little nod to the Hildebrand rarity short story towards uh, the end. I thought that's what that was. I caught it this time. You'd mentioned it before, and this time I caught it. So. Right. And obviously, it pays pretty fast and loose with the bond Oberhauser connection, which is established in Octopussy. So... Um, but the interesting thing here from a sort of literally point, literary point of view is this is the first movie to actually include a little bit from one of the continuation novels because um, the uh, the torture scene at the end um, with the drill and stuff is based and some of the dialogue oh. is from Colonel Sun. So um, I was wondering so- about that because that was a pretty dang – that was hard to watch. I was like, man, we got – you know, we started Craig off strapped in a chair with no bottom – getting some very brute force application to him and now he's strapped in a chair and it's kind of the opposite you know what i mean it's it's not yeah. only is it opposite and where he's getting hurt but it's opposite it's much more precise high tech but yet in both cases he's being tortured strapped in a chair i thought that was interesting kind of come full circle there yeah so in uh, that that's from colonel sun wearing colonel sun they actually put a drill through his ear but mm. um yeah, so similar thing, but uh, it was interesting to actually see that there was a bit of a continuation novel in there. So I don't know if that's opening the door slightly, that we could maybe start to see a bit more from some of the other continuation novels leading over into the movie franchise. So um, so backstory, um, so we, you actually were just talking about uh, the amount of time between the Craig movies. Apparently there was originally a plan to film... This one, Bond 24 and Bond 25, back to back, yeah. and release Bond 25 two years after in 2017. Um, so I read in a couple of sources that there was actually this was seriously considered doing it, um, but uh, Daniel Craig did not like the idea basically because of the stress of doing these productions, which mm-hmm. we all know he finds hard work and he's quite happy to complain about it at the end of. Yes, so, he is. Um, well, you know, if that had, if the plan had been to do that and have it be like part one and part two, I would have been totally down with that because then they would have had room. They'd have built up Blofeld and built up Spectre and left it as this big scary presence out there when you get when you find out about it, and so call the first one something else. And then the right. second one is called Spectre. Now that you know it exists, and you bring it all home, and it's it's him versus Blofeld. That would have been cool. Yeah, yeah, but uh, that's not what we got, unfortunately. Nope. So, um, so originally Sam Mendes wasn't going to come back, um, mm-hmm. and they uh, talked to a lot of directors, including Christopher Nolan. Yeah, which, uh, but uh, they eventually persuaded. Uh, Mendes to return and they actually delayed this movie yet another year so they could get him back because he had other commitments so part of the delay um, of it going from two to three years was actually getting uh, Sam Mendes back so and Yay. apparently uh, <laughs> yeah um, and apparently uh, the main concept for the plot um, what came from Mendes and screenwriter John Logan, and then they brought in Purvis and Wade and a couple of other people to do the rewrites and the dialogue polish. So, um, and this was the first Bond movie where the Bond actor gets a co-producer credit. So, well, that's uh, kind of inevitable these days. Every TV show's got nineteen producers and they're the entire <laughs> cast, you know. So, yeah, that's yeah. that doesn't surprise me. It's just how they can pay him more money, basically. 
Yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. Talking of money, so the budget the budget was officially increased to two forty five million from Quantum's uh, and Skyfall's two hundred. Um, there are there are rumors though that it did actually go up to three hundred million um, in spend. Remind me what the budget of Doctor No was. A million. <laughs> That's what I wanted. To hear. Just had to hear you say that. I just wanted to hear you say it. I knew what it was. I just wanted to hear you say it. <laughs> yeah. I'm glad I remembered. Um, yeah. But again, a good return on investment. This one has done so far $880 million worldwide. It's no Skyfall, but it's done pretty well. So it's second to Skyfall in the all-time mm-hmm. list, yes. So, it's, so it goes uh, Skyfall, Spectre, and Thunderball when you wow. do the uh, inflation-adjusted ones. So. Far out. All right, so that's sort of the background stuff. Mm-hmm. So do you want to get into the play-by-play? Let's do it. All right, so yay, we start with an opening gun barrel sequence. Uh, we do, yeah. It was like, wait, are you sure Mendez directed this one? I've been waiting. <laughs> yeah, and it was a pretty good one uh, mm-hmm. with the, uh, the, the, uh, the Newman version of the Bond theme leading up to it. But we got the three dots and then the gun barrel. Mm-hmm. Rather than the gun barrel and then the three dots opening on the on the opening scene, but whatever. But it was good. It was great to see it. Mm-hmm. So, um, and it was a pretty good one. And then we uh, we open on the pre credit scene. Oh well, actually we open on that caption screen, which they've never done before. Uh, yeah, that I was, was going to ask you about that. Yeah, what yeah. is what was that? I mean, I know it was was that just a Mendez thing? Just to I, that that it was just so incongruous. If it was any other movie, you'd be like, okay, but it's. You're going against 23 other movies that didn't do that, and it just struck me as, whoa, where'd that come from, and, and was it really necessary? I'm not sure. I mean, it was pretty much spelling out the theme of the movie for you because, obviously, it's not just the Day of the Dead thing. It's yeah. the o- Oberhauser, yeah, Lofeld thing, you know. Um, yeah, that's it, true. But, uh, yeah, it did seem a bit a bit sort of incongruous, as, as you mentioned. Yeah. So, um, I hadn't thought about the, the connection to Blofeld, but yeah, you're right. Okay, that's fair enough. Yeah. See, when I start on a story, it doesn't matter whether it's a uh, short story, novel, comic script, or whatever, I always, first thing I do, I write, what's this What's this story about? Mm. One line. And to me, that's what that was. That was <laughs> that was yeah. Mendes' bit at the top of the paper. What's this story about? Oh, the dead are alive. Da, da, da. You know, it's like, okay, Fair and enough. They, I, I'm glad, yeah, I'm glad you said that. That that helps me. That helps me. Good. Okay. Okay. So we open on the Day of the Dead festival, which um, has since become a thing. Um, the world, yes. even though they celebrate the Day of the Dead in Mexico, there was no such thing as the Day of the Dead carnival in Mexico City <laughs> until they filmed it for this movie. Apparently I love it. Now it now it's an annual thing. I love it. Uh, That's so funny that they just made up a, a national holiday, basically, or at least a way of celebrating it. And Mexico's like, hey, that was good. Let's, do, let's keep doing that. That is hilarious. It's, a, it's like if Mardi Gras hadn't existed until, like, live and let die or something, you know. Yeah. That's, yeah. So, so, that's, that's so crazy. That's pretty cool. Um, yeah. So we get the single tracking shot of the man in the white suit, which is, turns out to be Sierra. Um, and then once you know Bond's outfit, you can actually spot him off to the side in the crowd, which is pretty cool. Um, so you get the single tracking shot, which then switches to tracking Bond with mm-hmm. Estrella. The, uh, uh, and you, you start to get the touch of the Bond theme when he gets into the hotel and takes the skull mask off. And then a walk across the, the rooftops. So this is, you know, everybody was like, oh, it's the single tracking shot. I think I read somewhere it was like actually done in six, six different shots. Yeah, but, um, it, but it looks... But it's, it looks it's, really it's, cool. it's how he it's how Mendez did nineteen seventeen from what I understand. I haven't seen it yet, but it's the same general. He just expanded oh, yeah. it to the entire movie. Yeah, um, 
Uh, that was actually my note in here is I think he was practicing for 1917. Right, um, right. Yeah. And um, by the way, I'm just going to sidetrack on that. You may have thought from last one and this one that I don't like Sam Mendes as a director. I actually do. And I will highly, highly recommend if you have not seen 1917, yeah. go see it. It is absolutely brilliant. Okay. Uh, yeah. I'm, I, I have it when it's as soon as it's on video and I can get it in my living room or my basement, I'm going to totally watch it. Yeah. I, 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 let me say a couple of things about the opening. Um, yeah. I love the visuals, the, the 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 skulls, the skeletons, and everything. I love the fact that the first time you see it, you're not entirely, sh- at least I wasn't entirely sure that was Bond. I like that as he's walking along very confidently with the girl, you know, holding his arm and everything. You're like, I'm, I think that's Bond. They're wanting me to kind of think it's Bond, but it might not be, right? It could still be somebody yeah. else. So yeah. I, I like that he's got the mask on and he's acting he's he's acting very like stiff and and confident and everything and so you know he certainly seems like Daniel Craig but you're not entirely sure and I like that and I love how the girl lies down the bed and looks up and he's like going out the <laughs> window that was awesome I love a yeah. lot about this scene I really do and I, and I love the whole idea of the Day of the Dead parade and all that so i was gonna say when you said this one doesn't have to do a lot that's new i think this whole opening is kind of a new thing and i appreciate it uh yeah i i guess part of me again with it not being new is if you think of the kobe docks yeah scene in you only live twice with the long extended continuous shot that's true not done the same way as this but it, when i heard about it that was my initial thing was oh sam mendes is trying to do mm-hmm. an equivalent of the you only live twice shot so, um, but I think he does a, a better job here, obviously, because it's more complex. It's not just across one it horizontal looks, plane like a roof. It so looks really you know, good. It look. I mean, yeah. the whole and just everything about the way it's shot, the cinematography, the color, everything about that opening sequence, all the way through the end of it, just looks great. It's a beautiful piece of film. That whole segment, I really appreciate. It. I, I I will say, even though it's a different cinematographer this time. Um, mm. It's not Roger Deakins. I can't remember who it is, but it still looks great. Yeah, it, it, it again. It's a nice. Sam Mendes makes nice looking movies. Yeah, I will say. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we get the uh, the walk across the rooftop, and he's got his sniper rifle. Yeah. Um, by the way, do you notice that he's actually completely ignoring his own device because he starts touching the, the thing in his ear, which he, in the previous <laughs> be in a casino royale told people off for. Um, anyway, so he has the sniper rifle with the boom mic. Um, and I like the the, the the bit when he's discovered because basically the smoke from Sk- Skiari's cigar illuminates the, the, the laser. Light beam, the laser. So I, I thought that was pretty cool. That was. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, and we start to get the, the conversation about, you know, they're planning to blow up a, a football stadium or something mm-hmm. like that. And he's got to go see the Pale King. So it's like, oh, okay, this is interesting. You know, what are they talking about? Who's this Pale King guy? So, yeah, I, I like that. Um, and for me, this is where it starts to get, it's, we start to get a, a little confusion as to what's the tone of this movie. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, they get into the firefight across the gap and Bond fires one bullet. And I've been backwards and forwards over this. I cannot figure out what it is he hits that makes half the hotel explode like a bomb a or something on the table i think they have was some it the bomb on the table is yeah, that what he hit i think they had like a suitcase bomb sitting there on that table between them and when he shot he shot two people but not sierra and when he right. shot the third time it hit the it hit the suitcase thing and it blew up it's not really oh, clear okay but i think that's okay. what happened yeah <clears throat> okay because i couldn't figure it you know i thought it was another one of bond's magic bullets that blows <laughs> yeah 
he fight, which we'll see quite a few of in this movie. Oh, yeah. That he fires yeah. one shot and it, it, you know, destroys half a building. But if it hit, hit the bomb, I hadn't thought of that. I'll have to go check it again. Yeah. Um, that was impressive. Was I had. Okay. Cool. All right. Well, thank you. You answered one question. All right. Is so the is the this. was the laser acting as a microphone or was the laser just there yeah. and he was using? Okay, I, that's what I wasn't clear I, about. Yeah, I think in that was a micro. It, it was like the light beam was was picking up the sound waves. Yeah. and stuff. That was that um, was kind of what I was taking, but okay, that, that okay. Okay. Um, so we get him running across the roof, but we get. It's <laughs> a great again, bit. Maybe it's my big screen TV with the CGI, but the CGI of the the build the, the facade of the building collapsing towards him was a little too obvious. Um, and then we get the uh, the bouncing off the sofa. That's a little bit Roger Moore-ish, I guess. <laughs> it was. There, there's a couple of Roger Moore moments in this movie. I was actually surprised. Yeah. There are a couple. Yeah. Um, then we get the chase through the streets. We talked about Daleks earlier. I'm oh. going to side sidetrack here. So I don't know if you noticed the dancers in the street with the big voluminous yes. conical. They're rolling. So you, you couldn't see their feet. Yes, it looked like they were rolling. That's the sort of thing that actually inspired the uh, Terry Nation when he's uh, when he was creating the, the Daleks. Um, really, his discovery. He'd seen Romanian dancers on the stage in London that had the similar things. They had all enveloping skirts. So when you moved, you couldn't see their feet. And that was, that was the description he wrote for, this is what the Daleks should look like and how they should move. So wow. seeing them on, seeing them in this, it was like, Oh, I can see why he made that connection. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. And I have a question. Yeah. Is, is quantum of solace, the only Craig movie so far that doesn't have him chasing somebody all over all the, landscape in the first act of the movie because well, it's a it car the roof. no but then it gets into oh, the, you get the, the rooftop Sienna. chase in uh, P- Piazza. yeah in, oh yeah oh, yeah they've all got a rooftop chase somewhere. yeah you're right okay i forgot about yeah. the sienna thing at the at the uh yeah, the ra- yeah. horse race yeah the horse race yeah so we get the chase through the through the celebration on the streets again i think that's pretty good um and then we get the helicopter coming in a great visual mm-hmm. but again this is maybe just storytelling me but why would you try and land a helicopter in a crowded square? Wouldn't if he had to pick up if he would, that was a prearranged pickup? Wouldn't they be doing it like somewhere like a abandoned lot a couple of blocks away or somewhere where you wouldn't? One would think, yeah, you know, somewhere I, it would be a bit more secluded and you wouldn't be attracting attention, I guess. But I hope that this whole op- that whole shot with the helicopter and the Zocalo, I hope that that was a composite put together yes it was because it was. They, if, they, i was gonna say if they, they, they actually <laughs> if they actually filmed the helicopter doing that over a crowd like that oh my lord in heaven <laughs> yeah they actually i was actually reading that instead of doing a um they didn't want to do a a, a green screen mm-hmm. um, so they actually did do a practical effect with the helicopter but it was done in another location mm-hmm I think it was out over the desert or somewhere. And then they did a composite shot of the helicopter above the crowd. Oh, so good. Like, okay. Yes. I'm like, man, yeah. I hope <laughs> I hope they didn't put thousands of people's lives at risk to get this film <laughs> because this looks really dangerous. But it looks great. I mean, again, this whole, like the whole opening with the everything in this part is just fantastic. And I always enjoy... I always enjoy when Bond is on an air vehicle fighting the pilot. Uh, yeah. There's nothing more entertaining than Bond trying to kill somebody who's keeping them both alive in the air. <laughs> That's yeah. always fun. Yeah. So before he starts fighting, fighting the pilot, of course, he has the, the fight with Skiari. Now, it was a cool fight, but the thing is, why did Bond focus on and make a grab for the ring? Did he 
or if he know did he yeah, know I what it meant? I mean, you're in the middle of the fight, and the, it, it just looks like a wedding ring. Why? Why, why would you think oh, I've got to get that? I think we are to understand that he suspected it was significant, and that right he because wanted, he'd seen him sort of hold it up, hold it, um, yeah, flash it in, like an idea or something. And he figured it would be a, a important clue, and he knew he was going to chuck the dude out the window, so he wanted to keep the clue. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah. seriously, I think that was it. I think he knew he was planning to knock the guy out the window. He's probably seen enough James Bond movies himself. He knows the guy's going out the door of the, of the helicopter. Yeah, exactly. So, so he's yeah. like, I better save something because <laughs> there's not going to be anything else left. But yeah, so, it did strike uh, me as funny that in the middle of the fight, he pulls the ring off the guy's hand. I mean, that was yeah. kind of funny, though. But yeah. yeah. Um, so we get the fight on the helicopter. It's really well done. I like the rolls, the loop in the helicopter, all, mm. all pretty neat flying, very well done. Um, again, practical effects. Uh, and I actually like the, the start of the theme song melody as Bond flies away. And we get the seamless transition into the credit sequence. I actually like like that. So yes, um, you know, I'm with the movie up until now. I, uh, I'm still with the movie. That's good. Um, so we're good. Um, now the so right. I, the the opening music. I gotta know yeah. what you think about the song because this one's got a very mixed bag of reactions from people. Yeah. So I actually think writing on writings on the wall is a pretty good song, mm-hmm. just not sung by Sam Smith. Oh, <laughs> okay. Interesting. Uh, if you listen to the cue, the music version with a strong female vocal, I think it's a really good, solid Bond song. But Sam Smith's vocals are just not to my taste okay. at all. Um, so I think he wrote a really good Bond song. I just don't like the performance personally. Um, but it did go to number one in the charts. It was the first Bond theme to do that. Um, and it won an Oscar. Since, so, since you know, the Duran Duran, uh, think, sir. Excuse me. Sorry, in the UK, it was the first one. <laughs> That's to better. There we go. All right. Um, but uh, yeah, so I actually think writing's on the wall. And over the years, I've actually come to really like the song and think it's something of a classic Bond song. I just don't like it in with his vocal on it. So. I like it a lot. I have no problem yeah. with it as a Bond song. I would like to hear it, the version that you're talking about. That sounds very interesting. I'd like to hear that. Not having heard that, the only version I've ever heard being this one from the movie, I think it's absolutely a classic Bond song. I have no problems with it at all. I don't know why people do. I've just recently listened to the new one. I hope I, I hope, the, I hope the movie's a lot better than the new one because I, I, I find nothing appealing about this new song. Nothing. See, I find we're completely it, opposite because I actually love the Billie Eilish one. I so. find there's, there's nothing melodic about it. There's nothing interesting about it. I don't like it at all. Whereas this one, I think, is a classic Bond song. Absolutely. Uh, it hits all the right uh, uh. points for me. All right. Um, well, we'll agree to disagree on the No Time to Die song. I'll listen um, to it again and just give it a chance. <laughs> This one took me a couple of times, for sure. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, but I will say, I actually think this is the worst opening credit hmm. uh, sequence. I don't know what it is with the the slimy octopus, octopus tentacle porn and bare-chested Daniel. <laughs> um, it, I just found it really creepy um, and uncomfortable. I just, I actually, it's the, I actually looked away from the screen. I don't like. I just don't like watching this this Daniel Kleiman opening sequence. Oh, my, um, my problem with it is it gives away stuff from later in the movie, like shot for shot. There, there is that. And it, again, I think it's a report, poor repeat of the Honor Majesty's Secret Service yeah. thing of showing the previous movies, but done for a completely different reason. And it's based on a flawed premise within the movie. So it just doesn't mm-hmm. work. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. 
Um, and then we get, to, uh, which is where I usually mention the score, another Thomas Newman score. Um, I love the one for Skyfall. Um, this one I thought was just a pretty much a lazy repeat of a lot of what was the same cues and themes for Skyfall uh, throughout this movie. So again, it's, I, the thing about this movie is I think there's so much recycled mm. and a lot of it just feels like they were just going through the motions and it feels, I, what's the word? I think the whole movie just feels lazy to me. Mm. I thought this is interesting that you say that. I never really noticed even any. I, I couldn't tell you one bit of music from Skyfall other than the song. I didn't notice anything music-wise watching that movie. Whereas with this movie, there were three or four times where I actually stopped and went, "Oh, I like that. Oh, I'm listening yeah. to that music. That sounds really good." And there were several moments. I think one of them was there in the desert before they got to the to the to the crater or whatever. Um, there were just several moments when I went, oh, I really like this music. And it, it may have been in Skyfall. I just didn't notice it in Skyfall. Or it might have been done better and I didn't notice it. But I just didn't notice anything about the music in Skyfall. And I really enjoyed parts of this score. And that's rare for me with Bond after like 69. Yeah, that is. See, I was completely opposite. I loved the score in Skyfall. For me, that was one of the highlights of it. Mm. And in this one, it was just noise because it sounded so familiar. So. Mm. Um, I don't mean noise in a bad way. It was just sort of background noise, if, if that's what you, you no, know. No, I understood you, yeah. Wallpaper music, yeah. Mm. yeah. All right, so again, we get a nice opening pre-credit sequence. Um, we get the icky credit se- credit <laughs> titles, the title credits. Um, and then we start off where we left off with Skyfall, and Alan's excited because we're in M's office. Yeah. <laughs> and I think he's going to give Bond a mission, and he doesn't. He gives Bond a bollocking. Um <laughs> Use a good British expression. There you go. Um, yeah. Um, and then Bond gets suspended. So, oh, um, guess what? He's going to go rogue. Uh, yeah. Like I say, it again, happens like twice in the first 20 movies, and then it happens every movie Daniel Craig has ever done. I do want to say something while I'm thinking about it, though, when you talk about M and the office and everything. One thing I did like, particularly about this movie, is that for the really the first time, they try to give everybody in the supporting cast something to do and something out of the office, more physical to do. I think Money Penny gets the short end of it. She doesn't get to do a whole lot other than come over and we'll get to that in just a minute. But she doesn't get to do a whole lot in this. But M gets to do some action scenes. That was awesome. And Q gets to do some cool action, well, as much action as he's going to get, like on a computer while somebody's shooting holes in the glass next to him. But that's pretty action-oriented for Q, right? So I like that M and Q both got to do something. We didn't have a Felix Leiter sighting, but we did get to see somebody, you know, one of Bond. We, we, we got Bond helpers. It was just his actual supporting cast this time instead of other people, which I thought was neat. Okay, I didn't like the Scooby Gang thing. <laughs> um, oh, no. Because for me, Bond is that mythical soul warrior who saves the world. You know, it's something that every culture has is this idea yeah. of the lone warrior. And that's what Bond is. He's the lone warrior archetype. That's what he's been for 20 odd movies. Um, you, you know, they're the, you know, getting a bit Joseph Campbell here. Yeah. You know, the, the, <laughs> these should be the guys in the background who, you know, are the mentor and the guide and the armorer and they set him up and he goes out as the lone warrior yeah. to solve things. That's the Bond trope for me, which is, again, one of the issues that I have with this movie and the Scooby Gang well, stuff to, towards the end. Um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want it every movie, no. 
I just thought right. for a nice little change of pace, and I wouldn't want them like always in the same scene helping him. But I liked that they had other things to do separate from him while he was doing his Bond thing that let them do something besides sit behind a desk, you know, and and give him orders and make coffee and whatever. So that that was what I right. liked because there were moments that Q got to do things with Roger Moore, for example, that were pretty cool, right. you know. And yeah. that was kind yeah, of what I. Timothy, I'm yeah. with Timothy Dalton. The thing is here, and we're getting right to the end of the movie, but it's Q that saves the world. Yes. It's not Bond. And it's M that defeats the real bad guy to a certain and degree. And it's M that defeats the bad guy, yes. So there yeah. you go. That's true. All right. Okay. So talking of the real bad guy, um, this is where we get uh, the intro to uh, Andrew Scott as the, uh, the, the slimy <laughs> the, the priest from Fleabag. I know he's Moriarty. also. I know Moriarty he's more. I know, but but he's he was Moriarty when this movie came out. But now he really is the priest from Fleabag. So you can't get around that. Okay. Which is interesting, by the way. Here's another six degrees of separation. Is that Fleabag herself is co-wrote co-wrote the new one. Right. I am yes. very excited about that because I love her, uh, and I really am looking forward to what she can do with the dialogue and all that. Just to get some somebody some fresh some fresh ideas in there, you know. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, inter- I'm interested to see what she does is with, with it as well. So, so I, I've seen a lot of people saying that the sort of the C Bond calling him C is an insult. Yeah, I've never um, figured that out. Well, it's partly because at the end about we know what C stands for because you're a anyway bad word beginning with C. Oh, um, I didn't. I didn't get that one. Um, but well, yeah, he says M because when he's with M, he says, oh, "Well, we all know what M stands for." Now it's more on and then. M's like, well, we know what C stands for. And he says it's careless, but you can, it's double meanings. Oh, anyway. oh okay. Yeah, I, I didn't, okay, you're right. I got that. I just didn't put it right. together. But actually, actually, the Bond saying, I'm going to call you C, that's actually historically correct because there is no M. Right. It's just a I mean, fictional version. The actual head of the Secret Service called is C. called C yeah. um, from Sir Mansfield Smith Cumming, who was head of the Secret Service in the early 20th century. Yeah, um, I did. And I did sign all these memo. Saw that sign all these memos with C. So Bond calling him C is actually historically accurate. That's so. funny. It just wouldn't uh, have been that guy. It would have been him that would be called C. Yeah, so. yeah, yeah. So, um, so this is where we get, you just mentioned it, we get to Bond's apartment. This is uh, only the third time you've seen Bond's home. Mm-hmm. Can, you, can you mention the other two? Oh, well, obviously one was Live and Let Die when he had the horrible tile in the kitchen. Uh, we spent a lot of time in Bond's apartment, Live and Let Die. Wasn't it Living Let yeah. Die? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, the other one, though, I feel like it was also Roger Moore, but I don't remember. Actually, it's Doctor No. It's the first movie. When oh. He comes home to find Sylvia Trench there. Oh. You know what? That The reason that doesn't ever stick with me is that however they staged it, it looks like a hotel room. I remember you saying that before, actually, as you just mentioned it. Yes, you did, yeah. But uh, doesn't so. I didn't I didn't know that was supposed to be his apartment or his house or whatever because it looks like he's just in some hotel room like every other scene in every movie back then, huh? All right. Okay. Interesting. So Daniel apparently the uh, Bond apparently gets paid really well because he lives in a very big apartment in a very expensive area of London, which is very nice. One would hope he gets um, paid well. <laughs> so um, I I did like the thing about the fact that when Money Penny turns up and she asks if we've only just moved in, which she would know. <laughs> Wouldn't she know what his home address was? And where, anyway, how long he'd lived there? But uh, you know, she makes the crack about have you only just moved in because all the paintings, uh, yeah. pictures, and everything is still on the floor. And it's, yeah, so um, I thought that was that was good. 
Um, and then money delivers the box of remnants from Skyfall. Um, I, I, hold on, hold on, hold on. That's what I wanted to ask you. Right. It's a very contrived bit here. You know, we're going to be nitpicky and all that. That's what we do. That's our brand. I'm sorry. But <laughs> yeah. she walks up to him with the box. Yes. All she has to do is hand it to him. And he's like, no, no, bring it to me tonight at 9 o'clock. And so you're thinking, okay, well, that's just he's setting up an excuse for her to come over and hang out for a while and everything. But yet she she doesn't go, what? Just take the damn box, right? But no, instead she's like, okay. So then she does come over at 9 o'clock that night and bring the box. And he's like, okay, thanks. And I'm like, what? <laughs> you, you made her wait all day. And go all the way out of her way to come all the way over to your place to bring you a box she could have just handed you to, handed to you, and you're just like, okay, thanks. I mean, like, what? And now, it does kind of go a little beyond that. Well, it does, and I actually think it goes even further beyond that, because when I was watching it this time, it was yeah. the first time I realized that you actually don't know how long she's at that apartment. It's true. You see them have, you see them have that early conversation, mm-hmm. and then it cuts to him watch, watching her walk up. He's at the window watching her leave. But you don't know how much time has passed. It's passed between that and giving yes. what was implied in Skyfall. Does that mean mm. she stayed over for a bit uh, of... Exactly. Yeah. Particularly as he gets jealous later on when he finds out that she's got somebody... Yes. That's true. So. But I, and, and, and so, like, by the, like you say, by the end of that scene and the next little bit, it's not as weird. But does it not just seem weird up until then? Because when she first yeah. comes in, he's not like, oh, glad you came over, you know, oh, have a drink. Oh, I'm so glad, you know, ah, you, you like my little subterfuge to get you over here. No, he's just sitting there in the chair like, okay, thanks, put it on the counter. Yeah. And I'm yeah. like, what, what? <laughs> I'd have thrown it at him if I was her. So that, yeah, no, was, I get, that was weird. Yeah, I get uh, And then we get, so now I'm really going to get nitpicky. So he shows Money <laughs> Penny because te- we get in the whole, I think, you, you know, everybody thinks you're, you, you're done, but I think you're only just getting started. What the mm-hmm. hell's going on? And he puts mm-hmm. in the tape from M. Mm-hmm. The, the Judy Dench Chan. Mm-hmm. Right. So she says, find a man called Marco Schiari, kill him, and don't miss his funeral. That's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. How many Marco Schiaris must there be in the world? <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. Has Bond been going around bopping off, killing anybody <laughs> whose name happens to be Marco Schiari? You know, oh. the pasta guy in Chicago. You know, the, the guy who owns the pizza joint in Chicago. <laughs> um, you didn't like my pizza. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> How many funerals has he been to? You know, you like to think that she gave him a little more information than that. In but that, there. but, but if you just watch the tape, that's the only thing that's she says. That's the only thing she says. It's fair. That's fair enough. Yeah. 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 And, um, and, and does she have to be that enigmatic? I mean, she's dead. She can't answer follow-up questions. Just spell it out. Why, why, why are you being so enigmatic, M? You're dead. You're leaving this for when you're dead. Just tell him. Just lay it all out in black and white. You don't have to, to hint around anymore. Right. <sighs> right. You're not uh, going to uh, get in trouble. I, believe me, you're dead. <laughs> and if she did this video as a in case I die video, mm-hmm. yeah. And this link, did she already know about Spectre? <sighs> That's a really interesting question. Know- did she know about Spectre and Skiari's connection with it or his connection with some organization which wasn't quantum but may have been something else? Well, think and the of, interesting thing, thing is, a, I don't get a really, really geeky and nitpicky. If you actually look at that scene, her costume and the background set, mm-hmm. that was clearly filmed pretty much. It, it looks like it was filmed at the same time they filmed the scene in her apartment 
in Skyfall when she did the stupid click here on the, on the laptop because it's the same outfit. And the same, oh. if you look at the background, it looks like her apartment. So did she know way back then that she was in danger of being killed? And if so, why did she need a if I'm dead message that she then had to mail to Bond? It just opens up way too yeah. many questions. Well, I, and see, I was thinking if she, if she, you know, she didn't know about quantum until the beginning of right. Quantum of Solace. So I was thinking if she started digging on her own and found out about it, has she known about it for seven years at that point? Right. And what has she done about it? She hasn't even told Bond about it in seven years, depending on how much time, how time passes in the Bond verse compared to all the time tick tocking slowly by in our universe. But yeah. Our, yeah, yeah. But it is, but it's true. You know, it raises interesting questions, and I really don't know. It's good. It's good. Yeah. Um, but I was happy to see the bulldog ornament. We got a little bit of continuity there with that. <laughs> yeah. So, um. That's more continuity than we ever got in Connery or more. So let's just be grateful for it, okay? <laughs> um, and then we, so. Talking of the the box that uh, Money Penny brought over, he's uh, obviously uh, getting ready for bed, and he's uh, you know he's got his PJs on or his uh, his robe and his scotch, and he opens the uh, opens the box, starts going through the papers, and we get the uh, the paper about uh, the temporary guardianship. Um, so uh, I will say, seeing the paperwork with uh, Charmaine Bond, his aunt's name on there, was pretty neat. Um, it was a nice little Fleming nod that was like, ooh, um, mm-hmm. that was cool. Mm-hmm. Um, and the Oberhauser connection from the, from the novel, so about you know him being going there for a couple of years and stuff was pretty cool. Um, but what it leads to, that's just insane. Um, hmm. But uh, so again, I got really geeky. I free framed it and I looked at the dates on the paperwork. Okay, mm-hmm. so according to those papers that he had in his hand, Bond was twelve in nineteen eighty three. So okay. in this movie, if this movie is still in real time, that means he's 44 at the time of Spectre. Okay. Craig was actually 47, but it means Bond's 44. Waltz is close to 60 at that time. So at the time that Bond was adopted by Waltz's, uh, Oberhauser's father, and he started to get weird about it and start thinking about him being a cuckoo, Oberhauser slash Blofeld was 27 at the time that Bond was adopted by his father. Isn't that a little old to be having a psychotic hissy fit about? That's, yeah, that's, I didn't, I didn't put enough thought into the years for that to bother me. But if it, if it lays out like that, that is pretty strange. But then, like you say, we really don't know how much time has passed since Casino Royale. Right. And I'm making those, but, but whatever the age difference. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah. Anyway. Uh, I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. But yeah, I'm it's, just, it's, I'm I, just way, too, way, too, way too geeky getting working dates out. I think it's just when you're making them this this infrequently, the movies, it just becomes a big problem and you can't, you just can't. Yeah, but I, they shouldn't put dates on stuff because <laughs> idiots like me will start freeze framing it and yeah. stuff out. <laughs> that's, that's fair. Um, so anything else on the apartment sequence before we move on? No. All right. So we then get to Q's lab, where we basically get the exposition dump from Bill Tanner as they're going on the boat ride. Um, so we get the mm-hmm. whole, uh, he's explaining about C and the Nine Eyes project during the boat ride. Mm-hmm. We get to Q's lab and why, why Q is off on his own. Um, we get the whole smart blood thing, um, which they sort of talk, talk about as if this is like, ooh, this is a new idea and we can track Bond wherever he goes. They did that in Casino Royale, didn't they? Exactly something, the same thing. Something like that. It wasn't like nanoparticles in his blood. It was more like a little device or something. It, it was it? it was his chip, but it was the basic same thing. He, Similar it thing. Tracked yeah. his tracked his uh, bio signs and 
could keep track of wherever he was in the world. So. I, I guess he can't dig this out with a knife. This is in there yes, for good. Not. So yeah, yeah. Um, then we get the, the 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 reveal of the DB10. I'll come to the DB10 later. Um, but we get mm. the big reveal of the DB10 and the, the joke about it being reassigned to 009. So <laughs> that was pretty good. I I did really get a kick out of that. I have to admit. Right, um, and that, I did like the line about the watch when he gives Bond the watch, and he's like, you know, <laughs> "What does it do?" He tells, tells the time. The time. Yeah, it's got a really loud alarm. Yeah, <laughs> that was good. I, I well, you because you can see that in both of his movies, Mendez, for all the callbacks to everything else in the other movies, he does go out of his way to not give him a bunch of gimmicks to do stuff. He keeps it very, very basic, and I and I, I like that. I do like that. I, I, yeah, and I will say that the relationship between Daniel Craig and Ben Whishaw and the, the backwards and forwards between the two is great. I think they have an mm-hmm. excellent relationship. So. Yeah, they, they're really good. Yeah. Then uh, we get the, 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 the gag about bring it back in one piece um, <laughs> when he's talking about it, which is not what he said in Skyfall, because in Skyfall, nobody at MI6 knew that Bond had the DB5. Right. But I did like that uh, line, though. Bring it. I told you to bring it back in one piece. I didn't mean to bring back one piece. Yeah. Ah, All right. That's pretty good. Good on cue coming up with that one. Uh-huh. Um, and just the, again, me just being the vehicles geek, um, they keep getting these background shots and focus of them working on this motorcycle in the background, and we never see it used in the movie. And that just drives me nuts. I don't know whether <laughs> it was intended to be used in another scene, was, ne- was used in cut, or was just never used. But <clears throat> um, I, I don't know why they keep focusing on it when it doesn't. Yeah, I don't never, know. I don't know. So. <laughs> um, and then he leaves the uh, the phone for money penny on a desk, and we get the gag about M not knowing when her birthday is. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, that was cute too. There's some clever stuff in here. I, I really do yeah. like that. Yeah, that was. Yeah. It was last week or whatever. <laughs> that was, that yeah, was, yeah, that that was a cute gag. Yes, I like. I mean, that. that could have been any office anywhere in the world, right? Where the boss is oblivious to their birthday and she's kind of half pissed about it. That was good. I I, I, yeah. I thought that worked. Yeah. And then we get uh, Bond borrows the DB10 and, and heads mm-hmm. off to Rome. And I'm going to do my little digression about the, the DB10 here. Okay. I have a problem. I have lots of problems with <laughs> these. <laughs> but um, Bond driving the DB5 back when it was Sean Connery and, you know, or even having sort of, you know, Piers Brosnan having the DB5. That's out of the reach of most people, but it is sort of attainable, aspirational yeah, then mm. you could be driving around in a really nice sports car, yeah. you know, a $150,000, $200,000 sports car, you know, if you work hard and you've got enough money saved and it's, blah, blah, it's, blah. It's, blah. Not it's, a, it's, it's aspiration. Not a, it's not an interplanetary spaceship, right, yeah. Right, it, it's, but the DB10, and he actually mentions it, it's a $3 million prototype. Yes, that's right. He does say that. That's yeah. ridiculous. Why would you get, and it's not like, oh, it, you know, it was only for 007, because they were going to give it to 009. It was mm-hmm. sort of in, it hint that it's just going to become a standard car and it's bond driving cars that are completely unobtainable i think takes it a step too far i think bond's vehicles mm-hmm. should be something that you could you know it's like it's it's like with fleming writing in the 50s and stuff okay most people couldn't travel and get those sort of meals but there was an aspirational part of it you know if you really worked hard and you were successful right you could and eventually you know it that be it became something that most people could do. I think doing something that is co- so completely unobtainable, a vehicle that's never going to be sold to the public, mm. you could never have a DB10 because 
they were never sold. They were built just for the movie, and, and that's it. For me, that that's just taking the product placement and stuff a little too far. And again, it may be just me being a car geek and stuff. But I think <laughs> it just, I think it just takes a step too far outside of what Bond should be. Bond should be aspirational, not unobtainable. I have to say, and I love cars and everything, and I love Bond. I heard him say the three million dollar thing. I took it as just kind of a funny line and never thought about it again. So it didn't bother me. I'm sure it didn't. I'm sure it didn't bother 99.999% of the people who watch this movie. Um, it may, I may be the only person in the world it did bother, but it's not so much the DB10, it's that stepping from aspirational right. to unobtainable. Sure, yeah. makes sense. When you describe it like that, I totally get it. Yeah. And we have to pause here for just a second. We have to thank the folks who keep our programs on the air across our entire White Rocket Entertainment Network. For as little as a dollar a month, you can join their ranks. Just go to www.plexico.net, P-L-E-X-I-C-O.net. You will find their links to everything that the White Rocket Entertainment Network does, from books and comic books to podcasts about James Bond, about sports, and all the entertainment shows that we do here on the White Rocket Podcast and all the other things that I'm involved in. And you also will find a great big link that goes to the Patreon page, and you can join it, and there are a number of benefits you get for being a member. But mainly, you know that you're keeping our show going and keeping all of our shows on the network going for the foreseeable future. So for as little as a dollar a month, though we certainly appreciate more, you can be part of the White Rocket family and know that all of us here, and I especially appreciate you very much, our current Supporters include Matthew Flowers, Carl Von Drunker, Samuel Salvatore, and Christopher Burleson, along with Phil Amthor, Ben Spooner, William Glenn Matthews, Gary Grant, Wynn Carroll, Brian Gray, Winston Boddy, Willie Carden, Tom Anderson, Susan Trawick, Logan Chilton, Stephen Thompson, Chris Usher, Steve Trawick, and Richard Stevens. We also have Clinton and Christopher Stewart, Mickey B, William Morgan, Phil Davis, Joshua Corbett, John Otsuki, Preston Settle, Daniel Odom, AU Falling Up, Alchemist Kevin Smith, Clarence Alford, Will Summerford, David Hegler, Johnny Caldwell, Theodore Gary, Reynolds Wolf, Joel Beckham, Valiant Hermes, Jacob and Robin Fleming, Clay Henson, Ann Kanji, and Catherine England, George Gaston, John McCune, David Evers, Timothy, Steve Harlan, Dan Thompson, Wes Atkinson, Rich Reimer, Hugh Anderson, Blake Heron, Steve Houston, Cato the Barner, Danny Flack, Papa Todd, Russell Milling, Kevin Canoy, Don Zederman, Ross, Lane Middleton, Shannon Butson, Randall Walker, Shane Bailey, Mick Vigicana, Chris Thrash, Tony Perry, Alex Nguyen, Josh Teal, David Simpson, Earl Ricks, Mike Finley, and C.T. Wayne. And finally, we have Jeremy Minton, Wardam Wade, Spanky, J.W. Rice, Jason Albrecht, Russell Souther, Paul Bankson, Joseph Eiliff, Justin Bean, Kevin Mahan, Stephen Wyatt, Trevor Johnson, Auburn Elvis, Robert Drain, Brandon Smith, Royce Alvarez, Thomas Brinson, David Smiley, Matthew Wagstaff, Donnie Reynolds, Wade Carson, Ivor Evans, John Zavachin, Michael Morton, Lawrence Kane, Darren Pyle. We're almost to the end, but we appreciate all you guys. Chris Camo, Ben Amos, Ruth and Darren Sutherland, Patrick Williams, Rob Morgan, Stephen Schuster, James Taylor, John Stubbs, Kenneth Brent Rains, Nicholas Craig, Joseph Miller, Mark Squire, Chris, Brent Rumble, plus our great Surfer Chickify and our anonymous and occasional and one-time donors. We appreciate all of you so much. Just go to www.plexico.net to sign up. All right. Okay. So before we go to Rome, anything else on? Mm, no. We're, we're covering everything I want to cover, and we're getting to the stuff I really want to talk about. So let's go. Keep going. Okay. So we get to Rome. Yeah. Again, the... Uh, we're on the DB10. He looks down, sees all the labels. They're in Dymo tape. Ha ha. Um, 
I, that was meant to be a callback to the original DB5 because in the original DB5 they were Dymo tapes. But that was contemporary at the time. Yeah. It looks stupid on a modern car. It doesn't work. What was what was that? I don't, I'm not even sure I understood what it was. So on the on the the, the switches that Q had put in, yeah, yeah, it basically had that punched Dymo tape labels on it. Those oh cheap- yeah, yeah, like they had just been done, like thrown together in a hurry. They weren't like built into the console and everything so yeah and the tape on it was that black sticky tape that you punch the letters out of. oh okay that's what i wasn't understanding okay that's yeah i've never heard it called yeah. what you called it so okay that's what sorry that's the trade name for it that's okay. the brand name for it i see that, yeah no that's that's true yeah that was weird yeah but that that was a callback to the db5 in uh goldfinger because that's what they were back in the 60s in that car originally mm-hmm. that's what the labels were but at the time that was contemporary then you wouldn't do that no, yeah, now, no, so you wouldn't do it now. No, that no. was that was Mendes. Oh, look at me! We yeah, know the history. Uh-huh. Again, it just, it just I just found it distracting. All right, so we get the funeral. So, question for you: mm-hmm. Was Franz Oberhauser at that funeral, and was did Bond recognize him? I I didn't get the sense he was there because I thought he was. I thought he he was like the guy stood just off to the front of Bond, and he turned slightly sideways, and Bond like did a double take. Oh, I didn't notice that. Maybe so. Maybe you're onto something there, and I missed it. I don't know. Okay. All right. Maybe so. Uh-uh. All right. I was and kind then... of, I was kind of like focused on Monica Bellucci. You have to excuse Bellucci. me. That was actually my next line. Next line. Focus on. Mon- That's literally what it says. Focus on Monica Bellucci. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. Well, who could blame us? Um, so this sequence with Monica Bellucci, um, we talked to earlier about <sighs> characters who are introduced who are really interesting and could really do, and they get completely wasted. And I, I don't mean drink. Monica, how? <laughs> yeah. So when I was meeting with my uh, my fellow geeks in the regular uh, writers group, I meet every um, group of writers who get together every month, and uh, they were they were pulling my leg about the Skyfall, <laughs> um, ripping apart, uh, and then they were like, "Oh, so what are you doing next?" And I was like, "Oh, you know, we'd, obviously we'll be doing Spectre in a couple of weeks," and three of them they all said almost, in, "Oh, you mean the movie that wasted Monica Bellucci." <laughs> Um, well, so now, all right. Look, I I felt that way back then too. But again, with with time and distance, and maybe kind of knowing that, I was able to appreciate what she did in this movie, mm. and it didn't bother yeah. me as much. But I mean, that's the way it is with all these movies as they move into the past, right? When they're the contemporary movie, we can find all these things that we want them to be. But as they fade in the past, and we kind of come to grips with they weren't those things, I find it easier. And so I, I had no problem this time with her because I knew that we were going to get her for a short time in Italy, and that would be it. And so I enjoyed the scenes that she was in. And I'm like, okay, that's it for her. There, ladies and gentlemen, Monica Bellucci, everybody, all right, there she, that was her. She's a rat. Off we go, you know. And so I don't know. Yeah, it's just- I, there's, two, there's two scenes in this movie, sequences in this movie that I really, really like. And the, one of them is this, is the Monica Bellucci sequence. And not just because it's Monica Bellucci, but actually this whole thing about the widow – she knows she's going to get bumped off. She knows too much. Mm-hmm. You know, she expects to die after the funeral. Mm-hmm. Um, the whole thing of her going back to the, you know, to her villa, you know, walking through it, walking past the assassins that are there that she knows are there, but doesn't even give them a backwards glance, getting her drink, walking out into the garden, expecting to be killed. We hear the two gunshots. You know, she flinches, and then we see the two guys fall over, and Bond walks out of the shadows. That was cool. I adore that. I think that is so bond yeah um very well done that, 
yeah, to me, that's one of the best Bond moments in the whole of Daniel Craig's Moran. He's just mm. like, that is so cool. Um, and then, you know, we get the whole thing with, with Bond and her, um, you know, where we've got five, you know, I'll be dead again in five minutes or whatever. Time enough for a drink. You know, yeah. um, I think that, then unfortunately we get the whole thing of, well, she's only there to be an exposition dump because she talks, tells him all the stuff about the, the, the meeting and where it's happening and stuff. And it's like, why would she, how would she know that? Why would she know that? Um, I don't know why she'd have that information, but anyway, she's just, she's just basically there to give the exposition dump that can make sure that bond moves into the next part of the plot. Um, and then we get the whole thing of, you know, his number of my friend, Felix, give him a call. That's it. And as you said, we never see her again. And it's like, they set that up. She's a great character. Mm-hmm. You know, even if it's later on, we'd done, we'd seen something with her and Felix or, you know, as things were happening around Spectre and she had that, you know, she's somebody who's got inside information about Spectre. Why don't we go back to her well, to there, find out a bit more? You know, there, I, there might've been, and they just didn't want it to be three hours long, you know? Maybe, but uh, yeah, it, it just seems, it's so sudden and it's not like sudden as in the sacrificial lamb type thing. Mm-hmm. Um. It just seems so, again, such an interesting character that seems they could have done a lot more with that was just used, became an exposition dump, and was discarded. And, and so, on the other cool. hand, I was surprised she didn't die. You know, it's like either you either expect to keep her around and keep her alive to do something else interesting, or you just kill her because that seems to happen a lot. But to do neither one just was very uh, surprising, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So, but anything? So. Did you want to say something about the Monica Bellucci scene? Yeah, I just I I thought that whole bit was pretty effective. I liked um I tell you what I liked about it. A couple of things was I enjoyed that you get the hard I don't give a crap bond that Craig is really good at, right? We've seen that several times now in all four movies. Uh, he did it particularly in Skyfall, where the villain's trying to impress him often with, you know, I'll do so-and-so. And so he has to come back with, well, I don't care. You know what I mean? He kind of does that thing. And he did it with Silva a couple of times, in particular in Skyfall. And he kind of does it with her, where she's like, like you said, where she says, you know, I'll have five, you know, they'll be back in five minutes and then I'll be dead again. And he's like, well, that's just enough time for a drink, right? That's the, that's, that's, that's the hard and cruel Daniel Craig Bond that I actually, in some ways, don't like because it's so not in the previous Bonds. But in another way, it's the thing he's actually good at as Bond. And so I I like it for him, you know? And so Mm -hmm. I don't mind it as much as I used to because I've come to realize that you've got to appreciate the things each Bond actor brings to the table. And that's kind of his thing is he's good at that arrogant, smug, um, blowing off your threat, blowing off your bluster with his own. That's kind of his thing, and he does it. And so I, I thought that was pretty cool, actually. It, it's In a way, it kind of makes you not like him. You know, It's like, oh, he's, he's just being mean. But in another way, you realize that's kind of his way of coping with threats and with the other person trying to say something that's going to shock him. He tries to shock them back, and it's just how he does it. And so, eh, you know, I, I kind of like it now. All right. Um, so then we get the uh, he arrives at the Spectre meeting. Um, oh, now this is pretty cool. I, you know, I hate that. I hate that in some ways it was the quantum scene again. Yeah, I actually think the quantum scene was much better done than here. Yeah, that's the thing that that's the only thing about it. It's just different enough that it wasn't completely the same. 
but it's just similar enough that I'm kind of like, oh, this could have been better if it was just a little more original somehow. You know what it almost was? It almost was that scene from Eyes Wide Shut with Stanley Kubrick. It's it's almost like Bond is 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 um is Tom Cruise in the house full of people in the masks, and they all look okay. at him. You I know, I haven't actually seen the movie. I haven't seen the movie, but I've seen enough. I've seen enough stills and trailers that I know what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's like a he's in that house pretending to be. To, he he. Tom Cruise finds out about this weird thing going on in this house, and he gets the mask and he goes in there. He knows enough, just like with the ring, right? He has enough information to get inside, but once he's inside there, people start figuring out he's an imposter. He's a, tra- you know, he's an intruder, and it's that same thing. And that, I think that was, it's it's both what I like about this scene and what bothers me about it is that it's it's a cool scene, but it's also the third time I've seen that scene, you know, in a movie, right? And. Actually, I just want to give one story. So the first time I saw this movie at the theater, mm-hmm. back in 2015, the movie stopped at this point. Oh, no. But the soundtrack carried on. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. So we actually got the, 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 the top, the, the, when he says, my name's Topolino, it stopped right at that point, but the soundtrack carried on. And it was probably a good five minutes before we all started going, hang on a minute. Um, so, <laughs> Oh um, man! So, so we've got free yeah. tickets for the next day. But um, so whenever I'm at that scene, I just half waiting for it to judder and stop. But um, <laughs> the thing is, here he's arriving at this, this Spectre meeting. They're clearly expecting him because when he goes through, the, the guard sort of radios like, "Hey, he's here." Yeah, uh, um, they go along with him, but it's clearly something's up. Yeah, right. Uh, and then we get the whole thing with uh, you know with the reveal of of Oberhauser, um and stuff. So again, Bond there. Why not just capture him and kill him if they're <laughs> expecting him? Why go through the? Um, but it's a Bond movie. But Spectre right. Spectre can't help but be. They can't help but be dramatic. You know, they have right. to do yeah. the whole. They yeah. have to do the whole dramatic thing and give him a chance, and then he gets away. So yeah, yeah. Over yeah. and over so, again, that happens. This movie. Yeah. So I don't know if you noticed, but the uh, when Bond first walks in and walks first walks in and walks to the edge of the gallery, he actually stands next to a a, a, a guy with long silver hair. Mm-mm. Didn't notice. Okay. Okay. Well, that was actually one of the the guy who was actually one of the card players at the table in Casino Royale. Oh, cool. I guess it's supposed to be the same character even then. Yeah. 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 I guess so. Yeah. That's neat. Yeah. And then he starts the walk around the sort of the edge. So um, I don't know. We get. I will say the whole thing of the way everybody reacts to, I'm going to say Blofeld, it's so much easier. When Blofeld comes into the room mm-hmm. um, in shadow and stuff and, you know, he hardly says anything and he only does it through whispers and slight stuff. Yeah. Everybody, you know, that the the power of fear he radiates mm-hmm. sort of comes out. The fact that he's, just, I don't know, the fact that he's so small in, or smaller in stature than most people in the room, mm-hmm. it doesn't. It comes across as a little silly. I know Donald Pleasance wasn't very big, but it's, he seemed to have Pleasance had presence. Um, yeah, you know, no, yeah, Terry Savalas right. had presence. This blow felt just even in shadow and um, with that fear, it doesn't come across as him having that presence in the room. To me, I think that they watched um, Inglorious Bastards and as the Nazi. Oh yeah, no, that's a note I've actually got later on when I start talking about Waltz's performance. He can do quiet 
evil Gothic yes. so well because we saw it in Inglorious Bastards. Exactly. But yet, we, didn't, we didn't get it here. Here he's just like about as the threat level of like an accountant. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's, that's uh, unfortunate. Bond really almost needs a cartoonish villain like that to play that kind of a character. And I know that in the Craig movies, we're not wanting cartoons anymore. We're wanting things to be more realistic in a way. But this was almost too realistic. He was he could have just been like a middle manager at a small paper company or something. He didn't ever yeah. radiate this sense of dread and menace other than how people around him were reacting to him. And you're left wondering why are they doing that? Because, you know, usually like, yeah, like Blofeld in the early Connery movies when he's just a shadowy presence and a voice, you can still tell from his voice and everything, oh, yeah, he's the boss, right? Everybody's scared of him, right. sure. And and here is just kind of like, what's stopping Mister Hinks from doing what he did to that other guy to him? Take right. over the whole, but, take over the whole thing. Why not? Well, there's a couple of things here. Is if you compare that, you know, this this board meeting with their with them reporting out on all the nefarious activities they're getting up to, compare that to the one in Thunderball. The one in Thunderball, yeah, interesting, exciting, and it's like, oh, these guys are behind this and they're involved in that, and you know. Well, it was more cartoony and larger than life. And again, life, this this, it, this came across as some meetings I've been in. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yes. So it's, it was like one of the most boring conference room meetings I've ever been in, as opposed to Thunderball, which had tension in, yeah. in it. So, yes, uh, yes, that's yeah. right. Oh, so interesting side note here. So in the in the meeting here, where the the lady is speaking German, mm-hmm. which they don't, they don't bother translating. Um, so you know. They're all obviously fairly multilingual at Spectre because they keep jumping languages. But she's reporting out in German. When they sh- when they showed this movie in Germany, they didn't they they changed that to her speaking Hungarian. <laughs> okay. Well, I was just about to say the German German distributors didn't want her talking about white slavery and whatever else it was in, in German. German. See, I watched it on my iPad, and Mira had the TV on, and so I was moving around from room to room. I had the I had the captions on, and they had what she was saying in English in the captions. Right. And I just assumed that was in the movie, but it wasn't. No, she's no, she speaks German. Okay. So. Well, I mean, I knew she was speaking German because I couldn't hear her and understand her, but I could I could read what she was saying. So I was, in other words, I was assuming that what I was reading wasn't closed captions; it was actually on the movie. But I guess right. not. It was just the captions actually. Do, yeah, because yeah, you're right. She was talking about white slavery and all that. Absolutely. And they spell yeah. it all out in the captions. So Maybe it was on the captions. But anyway, she, I know yeah. she was speaking German. And in Germany, they actually yeah, that's interesting. Wouldn't, wouldn't do it in German. Anyway, yeah. So you just mentioned Mr. Hinks. Hinks mm-hmm. walks in. Great scene. Mm-hmm. They set up the whole thing with the metal um, thumb nails mm-hmm. sharpened metal thumbnails he uses to gouge, gouge the guy's eyes out great mo never see it again nope what's the point of setting up something like that and not using it at any other point in the movie i was wondering the same thing because the only other the only other time he and bond are in physical proximity are on the train and they're just kind of like throwing each other around the room or whatever they're not there's yeah. no gouging and stabbing and anything like but that. he has the I mean, well, you never even see it on his hands. I mean, you never even see yeah. a glint of metal on his hands or anything. Right, yeah. It does get referenced by Blofeld later, which is It does, yeah. Yeah. But um, but he doesn't do it again. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so we get the reveal of uh, it's Christoph Waltz, and we do get the silly cuckoo thing, which yeah. at this point is meaningless because we don't know what it, 
you know the references. Right. Right. Okay. Anything else on the meeting? Uh, does, w- was it not true that they originally were going to film it at a cooler location and they couldn't get permission and they had to switch to this one, which just really doesn't look as good? It was okay, but... Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that I, be true, I, I think it was originally supposed to be filmed like at a United Nations or a Hague or something like that, but it was like a big government facility that that um that mendez knew about and he tried and tried to get permission and they wouldn't let him film it there so they ended up looking around again and finding wherever this was and this was like their backup that was my understanding oh, okay well i know the exterior of it is a is a country house in in england um, i don't know what the interior was but well it would have been interesting to see the what the other one looked like because because apparently the other one looked even you know look this one was kind of boring really the other yeah. one looked really cool. So I think I think the other one was round, maybe with some different colors and everything. So I don't know. Maybe I'll Google that while you're while we're going on. Okay. Um, so we, well, you got plenty of time because we now get into the world's most boring car chase. <laughs> I wasn't. I, John and I were just talking about that car chase of the other day on our football show, and how we liked it. We thought it was pretty cool. I mean, it it doesn't break any new ground, cert- certainly. It is at night though, which is kind of interesting, and it's with two very super duper cars um and i do like that later bond says i left it parked on the bottom of the tiber which was pretty cool that was funny yeah it's nicely choreographed but it comes across as nicely choreographed it doesn't come across as a frantic car chase with any real risk or anything i mean if you look at it the, the two cars never get within a car's length of each other probably because that's two very expensive prototype cars that mm-hmm. they don't want to bang in it. And, right. you know, and I know they, they did ding some other. So you don't get that close up. I mean, you talked about the car chase at the beginning of Quantum Nostalis. How visceral was that mm-hmm. compared to this? Yeah. This yeah. is like guys going for a nice evening drive around Rome. There's nobody <laughs> else on the streets. That's true. Yeah. Other, other than the jokey guy and his little fear, very stereotypical, very boring. Um, there's nobody else around. The cars never, you know, at one point Hinks draws up alongside Bond and all they do is smile at each other. You know, he doesn't, nobody tries to ram into each other or anything like that. So I, it, it's, it's like it almost takes place in slow motion. So, yeah, it, it, it yeah, it, it's true that it, for the most part, they didn't seem like they were going all that fast, but I did like I, that. He kept trying to use his different gadgets and like the, that was out, it was not loaded with bullets. And one of the things was atmosphere and it was just like, some kind of music <laughs> that, that yeah. 009 liked. That was pretty cool. So, I mean, it um, must have been a fairly stress-free drive because Bond can actually hold a very detailed conversation with Money Penny during it. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So, um, <laughs> so yeah, I don't know. Um, and, you know, and it ends not because Bond's particularly clever or anything like that, because he literally, literally runs that road. I, um, you know, I was going to say the thing that always. Um, struck me about that scene that was disappointing wasn't the chase itself but the ending just it kind of ends right i mean he yeah. sets he sets the hood of hinks's car on fire and then he what I mean, remind me I, I just watched it this afternoon and i can't even remember right he sets the hood of the car on fire and then he ends okay. up and then he realizes that he's basically racing towards a dead end because there's a brick wall that comes down the banking oh and course. he uses the ejector thing doesn't he he uses the ejector seat to get out but it's and, and, and Hinks' hood dark. being on fire keeps Hinks from seeing him get out. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. That yeah, that was all right. It wasn't great, but I thought that was kind of clever. Yeah. So I'm trying. Uh, I'm trying desperately to find um, something about where they filmed that scene, and we're going to film it. And I can't find anything about it. 
I guess I I know I remember reading it somewhere, but I don't I don't know where it was. So if I find it, I'll let you know. But otherwise, oh okay. Well. Um, so I said I had two favorite scenes in this movie. The first one was the Monica Bellucci scene. This is my second one with yet another great character um, who isn't in it for long enough. Um, this is Bond arriving in Austria. Oh, Mr. White. White. We uh, love Mr. White is, so much. That is, that is large. I th- it was a great, great sequence. Great, great scene. And God, I barely even recognized him. He Didn't he look so different, just so haggard and everything? It looked like he'd aged oh, yeah. 30 years in the, two, in, the, in, the, in the four years or whatever between movies. Well, the thing Three. is, we don't know if it's four, four years because remember that Quantum of Solace is Bond's first year and then in Skyfall, he was a bitter. Yeah. He, oh, he, God. He'd been in the game a long time. So confusing. We don't yeah. we don't know what the gap in that timeline is between Quantum and um, Skyfall and this one. We assume this one's right after Skyfall. So you got the first two happen close together, and you got these two happening close together. What that gap in the middle is, we don't know. Yeah. Um, oh boy. There goes the so, timeline. Whatever we had worked out about it is gone now. Yeah. But but this whole thing of uh, missed, you know the the whole sequence we missed the white. Him being there and being sick, explaining being poisoned by his phone. Um, I like his uh, the Im- implication that basically Quantum was a breakaway group from Spectre because he disagreed with the way Blofeld was doing things. Um, I thought that was pretty cool. I mean, without it was good because it wasn't on the nose. It wasn't oh, and that's why I set up Quantum. Bum bum bum. It okay, was, you know, yeah, that that works. Yeah, that's, okay, that makes sense. So uh, I, I like that. Um, great acting, great chemistry between the two of them. Um, the uh, the whole you're a kite dancing in a hurricane, Mister Bond. I love <sighs> that line. Great. That's a great Absolutely line. Absolutely love that. Yeah. Um, but again, you know, and then he gives the clue about where his doctor is and his doctor, his daughter is, um, and stuff. So we get the uh, um, and then he's committing suicide. Uh, another great character that really got hardly any screen time. It sort of worked within this movie, but I also would have liked to have seen some more of him at some point. I don't know how you'd have done it. Maybe seed him in and out earlier on, um, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah. No, I know. Yeah, I, I, um, I was really wishing we had more of Mister White, and he, he, uh, and he just wasn't really himself and everything. It was interesting that they poisoned him with his cell phone. How how weird was that? I, how, I mean, is it is it through contact or radiation or? Radiation. I think that was also playing on the thing that was several years back ago about oh, you know, cell phones cause cause cancer and yeah, you know, if you have them up by your ear for too long and stuff and you know, yeah, um, you know. So I don't know. It was. I thought it was very well done. Um, um, okay, here's a little. Get, here, here's a little. Hold on, here's a little bit about it. I, I don't know if this is exactly what I saw before, but this movielocations.com says. Uh, Bond goes to infiltrate a high-level secret meeting in the Palazzo Cadenza. Originally, this was supposed to have been filmed at the Palazzo Reale in Caserta near Naples, seen as the Theed Palace of Naboo in Episode One: The Phantom Menace of Star Wars. But in the uh, but ultimately, it's it was actually filmed on the 007 stage at Pinewood. Oh, okay, so, and then the exterior shot was uh, was in England too. Was so. Blenheim, Blenheim Palace? Yeah. 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 All right. Cool. Um, so after the really great acting and character arc and everything of Mr. White, we get Madeline Swan. <laughs> and you can tell how excited I am about that. All right. We're going to have to fight. <laughs> We're going to have to at least disagree. <laughs> I love, I love Madeline Swan. I'm a very big fan of her. Really? I, oh, absolutely. I, she's one of my favorite Bond girls now. She's just great. 
I like everything about her, man. Absolutely. I think Leah Sado is a really great actress. She can be. She was awesome in Mission Impossible. Mm-hmm. When she played a badass assassin, she can play badass hard women really mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find her very wooden in here mm. uh, for what is supposed to be very emotional. Um, I find her, you're going to hate me for this. I find her about as convincing as a doctor as I find Denise Richards. As oh, good Lord. <laughs> oh my gosh, man. Um, slap me in the face. I, I, I just, no, everybody's got different opinions and, that's the fun of this stuff. Um, <laughs> I just, I just find her, like Waltz. I just find it a very flat performance by somebody who I've seen do so much better in other right. movies. Right. No, I get it. So, um, I did actually like the bit on the bit about Bond filling out the form, and he'd left profession blank, and it was like, yeah, that's not <laughs> something I want to you want to put on a form. I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah, that the, yeah, the whole scene there in the and and again, was this not just another gratuitous location? Yeah, I mean, didn't you just go ah? Uh, because see, again, I have my own movie in my head, and when they go to that location, I'm like, okay, here goes some cool helicopter action, and there's going to be battles and everything. No, they're just there to get her, and they get on the little cable car, and it's. Well, I, th- I think part of the problem was this was when we first started seeing the first publicity shots for this movie, it was at that location. And we were getting shots of Daniel Craig in snow gear mm-hmm. and this. And it was going to be like, great, we're getting Bond on skis. He's yeah. going to go skiing. We're going to get a big ski chase. We're going to get yeah. snow action. And don't we didn't. Re- don't really get anything. You just get him no. going and having a conversation and, and then like leaving with her. There's a little there's a little fight to get out of there. And then there's the hel- the airplane and the you know, all that, but which is cool, but it's not, and, and I'm glad it wasn't totally predictable, sure. But I guess I just figure if you're going to go up and use a location like that, you could have done that scene anywhere. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was really just, it was just a way of getting the two of them together so they could get yeah, to Tangiers. Exactly. And um, they could have done that anywhere. If you're going to use the, 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 the allergy clinic up in the mountains again, do something cool with it. That's the only thing I was thinking. I mean, I again, I liked everything about the scene. I liked his little, the scene at the bar with Q and with the the drink and everything. And I, I you know, all that was fine. It's just you could have done that in a in a office building in Manhattan for crying out loud. You didn't have to go to this exotic location to do that. I just, I mean, it, it looked neat, but I don't know. All right. Just, so while we're talking about Q, I think the thing with Q turning up was fun. But then Bond gives him the the uh, the ring and says, "See what you can find out from that." Mm-hmm. So we get the magic ring DNA tracer gizmo. <laughs> okay. Um, which apparently can track the DNA of anybody who's worn a ring, figure out who they are, and draw you an organizational chart and a logo. Yes, and a logo. Cool. Yes. That was awesome that <laughs> uh, did all that. Yeah. I'm like, um, oh, Q's got Photoshop on there. How cool. <laughs> but uh, And the fact that it, it, it figured out not only who'd worn the ring, but how they were all actually related to each other in the hierarchy of the that's, organization. That's hilarious. But but it, was is, it, shows, it shows Mr. White, mm-hmm. but he'd never worn the ring. Well, you're supposed to think he must have maybe shaken hands with Ciara or something at some point. Right. And who's been wearing the ring for the last week of this movie? <laughs> yeah, no kidding. And he doesn't come up. And why is he does not come up? Yeah. <laughs> 
I, well, maybe he just deleted him off because he knew he handed it to him, and he, he probably Q came up too once he took it, you know, and he's like, well, I just delete yeah, yeah. those. That didn't go into his PowerPoint that he put on there. See, but yeah. but I, but I did. I also one little touch that I thought was neat was when he has his computer open on the cable car. He's got like stickers on the back of it, and I thought that's so perfect because this younger kind of funky oh, yeah. Q. Yeah. Instead yeah. of a nice black one, you know, with silver and everything, instead he's got one with stickers on it. I don't even know what they were, but that just... Yeah, that, no, he just looks like the normal geek. I mean, i got stickers yeah. on the back of my, Mac, yeah. my uh, <laughs> MacBook. Um, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, you know, he just looks like a normal geek doing stuff when he's, you know, oh, I've got an internet connection. I've got to get online. Mm. You know, he just looks like a... But uh, I think the him Hugh using a bit of... Uh, Field craft and using the, the the crowd to hide from the two heavies who are chasing him on the it was was cool. I thought that was good. Um, and and again, you know, this is where we get the big reveal of the, you know who's the the name of the organization, who is it, and we just get a very low key duck or spectre <laughs> from Madeline Swan, and it's like really, yeah. yeah. So um, yeah, and um, so this whole so this is where we start to get the forced retcon really. F- thrown at us that oh, yeah, all these guys are actually connected and here's mm. the org chart and this yeah okay here's this is another problem i have with this movie is when it all starts trying to connect everything i thought yeah if they would just if they'd have just told a story and just left it alone and not i mean i get that if you're bringing in specter you want specter to be the big bad of all but it just it it felt so forced it felt so fake I mean, if there had even if they had been able to plan it to the point that in the first three movies they could have like had like a shadowy figure watching, or mm-hmm. or they had the yeah. rings on or something, it just when you when you don't do any foreshadowing and it's nothing but after the fact, it's just tell. It's not show. You know, it violates all the rules of storytelling to come in at the very end and say, oh, everything you thought you knew was wrong. Well, give me a reason to, to suspect that earlier and then and be like, oh, you know, don't just tell me that. Right. I mean, the, the, the big reveal is an info dump. It's not a development. You know what I mean? Development. All right. Uh, if you haven't seen The Sixth Sense, I'm sorry. Um, oh, yeah, I have. I know. No, 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 but just generally anybody who's listening because I'm going to spoil oh, yeah, the yeah. Sixth Sense, which everybody knows, right? They were all, he talks to dead people and Bruce Willis was dead to be committed. Yeah. But once you know that and you go back and look at the movie, you can see things in the movie and it's like, oh, mm-hmm. that makes sense. Exactly. Um, I'll even give an even sillier one. Phineas and Ferb, I don't know if you've ever watched the, the TV show. <laughs> I Phineas know of it. Okay, well, way back later on, they have a time travel episode where they tra- travel back to events within earlier shows. Once you know that and you go back and look at the earlier shows, you go, oh, that's them time traveling from 20 episodes in the future. <laughs> yes, exactly. That's what they, yeah. yeah I mean, those, those, those little clues are there. They don't spoil the thing when you're actually watching it. But later on, when you know about stuff, you can go back and go, oh, I see how that leads up to that thing. And see, the, said, the, the, con- just a false bit. the Connery movies did that. Yeah. The Connery movies, yeah. you, 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 the first couple, you had a shadowy... Well, you get, the, you get the mention of Spectre. I know they couldn't use the name, but you get the mention in the Craig era. But you get, you know, go back to the Connerys. Spectre is first mentioned in Doctor No. Right. He just says, I'm a member of Spectre. We don't need to know anything else. Right. And then in the second um, one, you get his shadowy background. Yeah. And they just slowly build it up until he's the main villain. And that's, 
Whereas here, he just walks right out. Hey, I'm Blofeld. This is Spectre. How you doing? We've been we've been behind everything you've done in those other movies, though you've had no reason to think that till now. And right. here we are, you know. And then you're supposed to suddenly hate him for four movies worth of hate when you've had no reason to build up to that. It just doesn't work that way. That that was the thing that bothered me from the very beginning about this movie, and it still does. Again, as much as I love so much about it, I really enjoyed it so much more this time, but I still have that problem that if you're going to do Blofeld and Spectre, you need more than one movie to make it work. This, and don't you think it also completely devalues Le Chiffre and Silver and some yeah, of course, Dominic, yeah. Dominic I mean, Green as, as villains? Yeah. It completely, yeah. yeah. For him. And he's not even impressive, really. No. But it does. I think it just devalues them as characters and as villains. In, in, in yeah, so. yeah, they all worked for me. Well, and I'm like, why? <laughs> yeah. That's why the, would such strong people work for? Uh, yeah. That's the question. Okay. I shouldn't be left with that question, and yet here we are. Yeah. All right. So talking about here we are. We're at L'American, the hotel. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, again, this this setup raises questions. Mr. Nitpick again raises some questions. So. Did no one else ever stay in that room between Mr. White's annual visits? I mean, did he own the hotel and keep that room separate? Did he pay for it all year round? Or or did he have it closed up to where nobody else could find his little room? And But why was it to where nobody – you had to knock the wall down to get in. That was what I was going to Right, that about. was the thing. Did he come every year, knock the wall down, do his little <laughs> stuff, and then bring in a local contractor and plaster <laughs> it? Put it back up again. No, I was wondering that. Too. Just, I mean – And just, if, if, he, if he did, what did the hotel owner and operator think of that? So that made me think, did, well, did he own, the, did he own yeah, the hotel? Yeah, he had to have been in league with the owner for sure. And, and then in that case, a nice locked door, and he has the only key would have been fine. Right, because where Bond pushes it through and they walk in that room, that's clearly the doorway. So why not just have a secret door on there? We've, been, I, we've seen plenty of secret doors. It was just weird. Um, yeah, I, I hate to yeah. nitpick and be and again and, and whine about stuff, but it's, this is just stuff that when you're when they're writing the script, I'm like standing over their shoulder, going, "Why? Why are you making these choices?" I mean, yeah. it's, it's, why it's, make it's, it more difficult than it needs to be? It just yes. needs to be a secret door. I mean, yeah. I mean, he he wanted the rat to show it. They wanted the rat to show him that there was a room there, or something. Although right, I'm not right, sure that could, how that revealed anything. And they wanted him to pour the water or whatever on the floor and see where it rolled and everything. Again, that could have been a wall. Yeah, it could have been a door. Yeah, it could have it, been a, It could have been another room next door that he's just poured stuff into. Yeah. So, so that was – by the way, I did like the little scene with the rat. It was incredibly slowly paced. I will admit him – I was waiting on this scene where he's just sitting there bored while she's gone to bed and he talks to a rat. And I was thinking – this is what we've come to. On the one hand, it was cute, right? On the one hand, it was cute. Who are you and who sent you? Whatever. I get that. That's yeah, who cute. do you work for? I like that. Yeah, it, that it was cute. cute. But on the other hand, I'm sitting there going, we're in this long, slow-paced section of the movie, and he's sitting there talking to a rat. And I'm like, how have we come to this, James Bond? <laughs> how right. how has it come to this? But, um, yeah. So All right. So you're talking about Madeline Swan in bed, okay? Mm-hmm. I well, am. She's going to bed and she says, come anywhere near me and I'll kill you. Yeah. She falls asleep in her white dress. Bond sits on moving in the chair. She wakes up, not in a white dress, but wearing a silk slipper nightgown. Yes, she does. How did that happen? I guess she woke up at some point and changed. I don't know. I mean, that's... I guess so, but all right. Um, and the other thing about the secret room is if Madeline went there with them every year as she was growing up, would she have known about it? Or did he only set that room up after he set Quantum up after she'd stopped going with them? 
did he did he send the wife and the daughter out while he knocked the wall down every the wall year? Down, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That's funny though. It is cute. Yeah. All right. And the other thing is, is she goes. I mean, within a couple of hours, she goes from saying, "I want nothing to do with my father and his sick life." So just a few hours later saying, I want to understand what happened to him and I'm coming with you. And I'm a good shot and everything. I know how, I know my way that, around that, the gun. Yeah, well, the good shot thing sort of makes sense when you get to it a little yeah. later on. But but uh, that's a really sudden change in motivation for no apparent reason. Yeah, yeah. It's, again, to fit the story. It's one of those things where it has to yeah. fit the story. So Yeah, yeah. All right, so we get the sidetrack to London where um, – They've suspended the double O section. Um, mm-hmm. And then the evening, Moneypenny and Q track him down at his regular supper table um, at rules to basically, and he's like, well, Bond's on his own. Because, um, <coughs> you know, if we say anything, C's going to know about it. So um, basic. oh, by the way, I'm going to completely sidetrack here. Rules, if you're ever in London, you have to go to Rules Restaurant. It's a little on the expensive side, but it is the oldest continuously operated restaurant in London. It's been going since the 1760s. Oh, wow. And the food is magnificent. The service is great. And if you're really, really lucky, you can get to sit at M's table. Uh, when Jill and I Jill and I went, we weren't. There was already somebody sat at the table, and we were like, oh, man. But we got to take our photos taken um, between them. <laughs> Um, and you only get you get like two hours you have to be in and out within two hours because it's um, you have to book in advance oh wow you get like two two hours to get in eat your meal Um, but it doesn't feel right I mean two hours is enough time for a meal but it's it's really worth a visit highly highly recommend rooms in London if you're ever in London and want to go out for a special dinner that place is older than the United States (laughs) sorry I said, that place is older than the United States. Yes, it is. Yeah. They've been serving food longer than we've been here. <laughs> yep. So, end of commercial. Um, <laughs> all right. Um, so, we get on the train, and you just mentioned that Madeline uses a gun. So, we get this little backstory about, um, you know, somebody coming to their house when she was 10 years old, and there was a Walther, or you know, I can't remember the gun, but there was a gun in her room. Um, I'm not quite sure whether they're trying to imply that she killed this person or she just had been trained how to use a gun by her father so um yeah that wasn't clear right um and i think and i'm jumping ahead a bit but when walt uh blofeld says i came to your house when you were little and she says i don't remember it and he says but i do i wonder if that was like blofeld and a flunky came to kill Hmm. mr white and because he was defecting and she killed the flunky or something. And I also wonder if it's going to tie into the whole thing about Blofeld knowing her secrets in No Time to Die. So mm-hmm. yeah. well, maybe I'm reading way too much into this. No, but, I think that's uh, probably something there, yeah. But I'm trying yeah. really hard not to think about No Time to Die so I won't do what I did with Spectre and build up my own story. And then right, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so we get dinner with Bond in a white tuxedo. Um, yep. Daniel Craig does not look good in a white tuxedo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but Monica, um, I mean Monica, uh, Leah Sadu sure does look nice in that dress. That they she looked nice, nice in that dress, but again, oh, those two, Lord, that that conversation, you compare it with the brilliant Craig Eva Green train conversation in Casino Royale and the tension and the chemistry between those two, and there's nothing here that comes even close to it, to my to me anyway. Yeah. No, I know what you mean. I know what you're saying. I I just didn't care because I was just staring at Leah Sadu in that dress and going, man, <laughs> good Lord. Um, um, so Bond sees the reflection of Pink's coming down the 
And yeah, yeah, but it doesn't do him any good. He sees Sammy it coming, Isle. but it doesn't do him any good because he kicks the yeah. table. And, right. yeah. and this is another drink that Bond doesn't get to drink. Have you noticed that? He's had three <laughs> drinks so far that he's not drunk. He didn't get to drink one at the... Uh, uh, Monica Bellucci's because he threw the, the, the champagne flutes on the floor. Um, he didn't get oh, to drink one at the, at the clinic because uh, he didn't serve alcohol. And then this one, he gets his dirty <laughs> martini and uh, it gets knocked out knocked knocked down, yeah. before he gets to drink it. So, um, That's right. Now... You mentioned the fight. Yeah, the fight is just them thumping each other up and down the train. And again, I think it's just a its a boring slugfest to get them from point A, the table, to point B, the goods carriage. <laughs> I liked it a lot. I thought it was I thought that it was neat that they kept throwing each other around. I agree with you, though, that he, he never went for the, uh, the, the thumbnail things, and he never no. seemed to take a... He, he, Hinks didn't seem like he was in any hurry to actually finish the fight. He seemed more like he wanted to just take his time bashing Bond from pillar to post for a while, and he did. Right, and what happens to the people? Because when the fight starts, there's four other people in the restaurant plus the waiter. They magically disappear. When it goes into the bar area, there's people at the back of the bar, and there's the barman, and they magically disappear. It's dinner time because they've just been serving dinner. When they come into the kitchen, there's nobody in the kitchen. And, and the other thing is there's hot plates and hot frying pans and saucepans full of boiling water, and they don't use them. You think back to the kitchen fight in um, The Living Daylights when they used yeah. all the kitchen equipment. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was some serious. You know, and they got, all, they got that stuff all by them, and they just go right through it, and they don't, don't grab it. Anyway, um, again, I'm probably overthinking this. Um, <laughs> but to me, the, the, the fight was, was boring. It just didn't just – didn't, really stack up to you know the from russia from russia with love or even the live and let die um the the other train fights it just wasn't up there with them so for me anyway Hmm. i think it was just that we got we got to get him from here from point a to point b well and and the sense that we got to get a train fight in because i'm i'm right and we got to get to the point where where hicks can get thrown off the train yeah and I'm Mendez. I gotta have a train fight because look at me. I'm, I'm a big Bond dude. So there's your train fight. Yeah. We gotta have a train fight, and we gotta have a bit with the chain because we've had a bit with the chain in every in every Daniel Craig movie. Yeah. Um, so there's that. Um, but the other thing is, from a storytelling point of view, why was Hicks trying to kill Bond? If Bond was on the way to see Blofeld and Blofeld was expecting Bond, who told Hicks to go kill him? Yeah, I think that's again. It's Hicks kind of on his own trying to. Uh, well, he was all right. Let me think. He was he was tracking them, wasn't he? Something like that, wasn't he? On their trail after um, they left. Uh, God, it's 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 already kind of blurring together. I felt like mm-hmm. I felt like Hinks was tracking them and was on their trail from an earlier moment. And well, you saw him, and this is where he caught up to them finally. And he was still well, on the same mission. We, it's again. It's another area where you they could have seeded clues and you didn't didn't get it because in Austria he went through at the end of the fight in Austria he went through the windshield of the, the Range Rover yeah, and it looked like he was there and then you saw his hand move and it's like okay he's alive mm-hmm. and then you don't see him again until he turns up on the train um, so yeah I think he was just focused on taking Bond down regardless he just it was getting kind of personal with him now right but I think you, know, you there was no clues of like seeing him outside the hotel or yeah that's true you know yeah that would have yeah. helped that would have helped that would have been true yeah Okay, um, and then we get uh, Swan using the PPK to um, shoot at Hinks, which is pretty pretty cool. Um, mm-hmm. But clearly, she didn't count her shots because she ran out of bullets. Um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then we get uh, at the end of it. Well, what are we going to do now? The post adrenaline sex um, again. 
z- to me, zero chemistry between uh, Leah Sado and Daniel Craig. Um, there was a great quote I saw. I think it was a movie with uh, Johnny Depp and Angelina Jolie, the name of which escapes me. Um, but basically, when those two were the romantic leads, and I saw one review that said it was like two icebergs colliding, and this is what this felt like. It was just like... <laughs> Yeah, that's good. All right, so but you clearly disagree with me on that one. So no, no, I, I, I don't. I, I, yeah, I felt like they had decent enough chemistry. I, I've seen better. Yeah, certainly Eva Green, but Eva Green's Eva Green. Come on, she can have chemistry with anybody. She could have chemistry with Iceberg <laughs> and it'd melt. But I mean, um, no, I, I just was very impressed with Leah Sadu. I thought she was really good in it. I, I okay. for, for what she was trying to be and who she was trying to be and what she was trying to do, in, in a relatively limited part. And it was fairly limited. I'm not even sure exactly why Bond fell in love with her or no, exactly. more than yeah. any other woman he's ever kind of rescued and run around with yeah. for, for 20 minutes. Yeah. No, so. I agree with you. And I think there's been people who've been on – there was more chemistry and more passion with the Monica Bellucci character than there was with uh, the Leah Sadu character. Leah Sadu's character is supposed to be basically the Tracy of this of, – of Daniel Craig. I'm getting the sense, right? Yeah, and she doesn't come close. And she doesn't, yeah, she doesn't quite. And again, I, I, but I'm not running her down. I thought she was okay, just not to to be that character in this franchise. You, there has to be something exceptional about you in terms of with the main guy. And it's yeah, I agree that we're again. This is see, this is another case where this movie tells us something rather than actually developing organically. Yeah, we yeah. basically are told, "Oh, they're together now," and he's like ready yeah. to give away everything for her. Why? Right. Well, because we told you, right? Yeah. Well, Blofeld is in. Blofeld is responsible for everything. Well, wh- how? Why? Because he told Bond. Well, yeah, but yeah. I-, I could tell Daniel Craig, "Oh, you know what? I'm actually the one that's been the author of all your pain, James. Prove me wrong." <laughs> you know, anybody could say that. Yeah, Why are yeah. we supposed to believe him? It's just, yeah, this movie, particularly in the last act just tells us stuff rather than letting us develop it and feel it and believe it. And that's unfortunate because the setup, I think, is really good. There is a good movie here trying to get out. And yeah. It's on so many But levels. again, it needed to be... I, I mean, I don't disagree with you that you could shave off some from the beginning and add it to the end. I just like the beginning and feel like if you had made it... And again, it's it's really already so long. But if this movie was three hours or three and a half hours, it would be too long. But it also might actually be able to accomplish or better accomplish what it's trying to accomplish in only, quote unquote, only two hours and, you know, 20 minutes or whatever. Or, or two two-hour movies would be fine just to get, set it up and then pay it off. There's... The, I think what you said earlier that if they'd have done two back-to-back movies, yeah, set, set up the spectre, mm-hmm. the intrigue, who are these people, seed the clues, and then have spectre be Bond twenty-five, that would have worked a lot better. I think. Yeah, and the twenty-fifth movie would have been Spectre. That would have been great. Yeah, yeah. So, all right. So, talking about the uh, the third act. Uh, <laughs> So we move to, uh, as you already mentioned, the uh, the crater that isn't a volcano. And this is where it all starts to go less good, let's say. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and again, just being a, a, I don't know, Bond purist silly thing, but when they actually ask Bond for his gun, mm-hmm. he, takes, he unclips a holster from his belt. He does. Bond does not wear a holster on his belt. He wears an underarm 
Well, he had it like stuffed holster in under his, his pants or something, didn't he? It was weird. Well, no, it was it was a chamois uh, chamois holster with a belt clip on it. Yeah, and it sort of. Um, but mm-hmm. Bond always wears an, a, a shoulder holster. That's, I mean, well, that, yeah, in the past for sure. Yeah. Yeah, <clears throat> I know. It just seemed wrong to me. So, um, and then we get the uh, the thing with the with the meteor, and I think there's a wonderful meta line in here, and I know it's not meant to be meta, but <laughs> it cracks me up whenever I hear it. Is when they're they're looking at. The, they walk in and they're looking at the meteor and they're looking at each other like, what the hell is this? And Bond says, I think we're meant to be impressed. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yep. I think it's a very meta comment about this movie. Yeah, I think you're right. That basically, and particularly this third act with the location and the big explosions and Blofeld, it's showing off for no real narrative purpose. And I find that a very... I find that line to be a really good summary of this movie. I think we were meant to be impressed. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. I, I yeah, I yeah. Part, I mean, again, I I liked it a lot better this time. But yeah, I agree that yeah, that it's trying to again, it's telling us be impressed. Yeah. Ra- rather than letting us organically maybe be impressed, and that just is weird. Yep. And disappointing. All right. Um, so a couple of other notes we've already talked about that I had here, which was Waltz's performance as Blofeld. We've talked mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. Um, we talked about the line about when he first met Madeleine Swan. Um, all right. So we then get Blofeld talking about his plan. The information is all. He's you know been look, hooked into all these cyber systems. Um, wasn't that Silver's job? Yeah, I was kind of wondering about that. So we've now got two villains in back-to-back movies who have basically got the same MO one on a slightly grander scale maybe because one used it for a personal vengeance and he's using it to manipulate governments but it's yeah. the same thing. I, You know, I guess though what I thought was this whole movie is trying to be a callback to like all the other movies and so I guess if this is Blofeld in his crater then instead of putting up a laser cannon in space to threaten the world, in the 21st century, he's, he's putting up a, a satellite network, you know, to control the information right. of the whole world. So it, it was just unfortunate that that's basically the same thing they had just done with Silva in the previous movie, because I think it works better here. It makes more sense here than it did there. Because Silva, right. Silva was just this former MI6 agent. Where is he suddenly this giant crime lord? I never understood that. Whereas this, the leader of Spectre, of course, is a giant crime lord doing this. So that, that worked better for me. In fact, if you look back at Skyfall, if that had been Blofeld, it would have made a lot more sense. Because that everything that Silva does in, uh, in Skyfall is stuff that I would have expected from you know, having a big organization, people are terrified of him. Having all this information control, you know, having a vendetta against Bond and him and everything. I mean, I could totally see that being Blofeld. I, I it, rather than just some random like Sean Bean type, you know, disgruntled former employee, which never made sense to me. But you know, so yeah, yeah. All right. Um, so this is where we get the the author of Audio Pay. Yeah. Oh, everything's tell, connected. Tell don't show. Yeah. Yeah. Um, then we get Bond waking up in the lab. But, oh, look, it's a white pussycat. I wonder what that could mean. <laughs> it did make me so happy the first time, though. I have to say, seeing the white kitty the first time I saw the movie, I just like all but stood up and applauded in the theater because I wanted to see that white cat so bad, just so it would really <laughs> feel like Spectre and Blofeld, you know. So, so I give him credit uh, for doing that. 
Yeah, again, if it if if it had been done subtly earlier on that we'd seen the cat in the background or the distance or he'd pick mm-hmm. one up or yeah. something. But I mean, I don't know whether Christoph Waltz doesn't like cats, but it, you know, they never, it, it, you know, it's not like it was on his lap or anything. It was there in the back, you know, on the, on and, the floor. And he, and when he set he, it down, he immediately it, starts pulling all the hair off his jacket. Yeah. That yeah. was funny. Yeah. So I don't know. It's, um, it was like, Oh, it's here as a prop. Boom. Mm-hmm. Done. I know. Yeah, at the uh, time I was excited, but looking back now, I'm like, eh, he didn't really do anything. It was just another one of those. Hey, look, it's the cat. You know? Yeah, exactly. Again, so. it was it was lazy. Um, and then we get the whole um, stupid foster brother connection back story and the big reveal that my name is Ernst Stavro Boto. I mean, that which made no sense. I, I think that having the brother relationship was them really just trying to find more reasons why Blofeld should care. Because otherwise, just tell one of your henchmen to kill him. You know, they they were they they needed reasons why Blofeld would care this much, want to torture him slowly rather than just shoot him, would want to pursue him, would want to put him through the whole weird thing inside the former building. You know, that's fallen down. You you needed. I, I got the sense that the only reason they went there was to have an excuse for Blofeld to do all the things he does all the way until the very end of the movie. Because otherwise, why would he waste his time on some random agent? You know what I mean? Yeah. I, um, again, if it had been planned out earlier on, they could have had it that, you know, uh, you don't give Blofeld a scar now. Maybe Blofeld got the scar because of something Bond did years ago. Yeah, exactly. You know? This was, just, yeah, the scar was just, I'm like rolling my eyes at that point. You know, I'm like, yeah. it could have been so cool. And it just is another thing that they go, oh, look, he's got the cat. Oh, look, he's got the scar. Oh, look, he was behind Silva and Green and whatever. And I'm just like, again, you're just giving this stuff away too easy. We're not earning it. All right, so I, as we talked, I was going to talk about the scar later when we got to that, but I, I actually want to read this now. So this is a quote from, that I, I found from Sam Mendes, okay? Mm-hmm. What we have here is a kind of creation myth at play. We're not adhering to any previous version of the Spectre story. We're creating our own version. <laughs> our film is a way of re- rediscovering Spectre and the supervillain, setting him up again for the next generation. They didn't do any of that. No. That's... <sighs> they did the exact opposite of that. Yeah. They actually did adhere to everything from a previous version of Spectre. And what's more, they actually adhered to the version of Blofeld that is the most parody-worthy. Mm-hmm. They, and without earning any of it. Without earning any of it, yes. Well, and it's like, you know, you said something a while ago, and now it's going to slip my mind, but yeah, you, you, you're, you, they're supposed to be setting it up, and, in, and they're just they're going paint by numbers, you know? Right, yeah. I mean, if this was meant to be a new take on Blofeld and Spectre, then make it totally new. Give him his own distinctive look. Don't make him Dr. Evil or Donald yeah. Pleasance yeah. or, you know. At least they didn't have him in drag. But you know what I mean? Don't don't give him the scar. Don't give him the Nehru jacket. Give him his own agency. Give him his own raison d'etre. And there's none of that here. Yeah. It's just it's lazy. It's just recycling stuff. It's too bad. It's boring. It's such a missed opportunity. Yeah. And it's completely opposite from that quote, which Mm -hmm. was what Mendes said they were trying to do. Hundred percent the opposite. That's right. Okay, so we get we talked about it earlier. We get the the torture scene with Bond getting this the, the drill in. Um, and by the way, Blofeld's really off because where he's what he's talking about and where he actually drills are two completely separate parts of the human anatomy uh, skull. 
Um, where he was drilling, he would have just basically ended up drilling a hole through to the back of Bond's mouth. He wouldn't have done any of the stuff he was talking about. <laughs> it certainly grossed me out. I'll give it that. <laughs> yeah, I will say, yeah, it was uncomfortable. And he also, um, he said, if you drill in here, you're going to not recognize anybody. And so he does it, and Bond recognizes her, and it doesn't change anything. And I'm like, well, then, it, again, what what was yeah. the point? It didn't. You didn't tell us why. What did Bond do to earn not being affected by that? Nothing. Right. It, nothing. And the bomb goes off, and Bond jumps up like he's just finished a training exercise. I mean, he's fit. He's healthy. He's just had this drill put in his head, and all of a sudden, he's running around like he's the <sighs> god of a... He's the best first-person video game shooter <laughs> operative that you've ever come across. I mean, he's running, he's grabbing, he's firing. Why did, the, like, why did the chair let him up? Yeah. I was curious about that. Was the explosion somehow caused it to let him go? And how did he know that was going to happen? I don't know. I mean, I that's picky, but it just it just struck me as I'm like, wait, why did it? The bomb goes off yeah. and the chair just lets him go. I went, wait a minute. Okay, I guess. Yeah. And then we got the... You know the escape sequence, which has no no real um, tension to it. Mm-hmm. He shoots a few people. He shoots everybody from a massive distance away, yeah. one by one, like it is a first-person video game. It's like yeah. pop, 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 pop. Yeah. You know. So by the time when he's actually getting to the helicopter, he's on a he's just, he's not even running. He's just strolling to the helicopter because he's already popped everybody off. He's killed everybody. Nobody's, he's got near him. Nobody's got near him. Um, right. Which is you know. Again, there's no there's no real sense of danger mm-hmm. to it. It's not um, earned. Again, it's not earned. It's over not like and over it, and over. Yeah. No, it's it's not earned. It's not like he's got to fight his way through a bunch of ninjas or anything to, to get there. <laughs> oh, um, for the ninja suicide squad. <laughs> um, and we get the magic bullet. Bond um, shoots one thing that causes enough damage for the whole place to blow up. I, did you, you? I well, I got the sense that Blofeld must have pulled the self destruct lever when he hopped in right. the SUV. I hope that's what happened, because otherwise, what did they shoot that well, would no, cause the whole... he was injured. They would have grabbed him and spirited him away, wouldn't they? To... Yeah, that, that... I don't know. I think no, when, nobody who builds these villains' layers has ever heard of a non-return valve in a fuel <laughs> line. <laughs> nope. Um, all right. So um, so we get Bond. They, they get to the helicopter. Oh, yeah. And why would they need that much fuel in the communication center? Anyway. All right. Um <laughs> So it's meant to be exciting. This is the big set piece that gets them in the Guinness Book of Records about the biggest movie mm. explosion. And Didn't, it doesn't feel like it. did not feel like it. It doesn't. It did not have, no. God, I, I don't... Alan, I did not come into this wanting to crap all over this movie. I really enjoyed it a lot this time. But no, the things that we're talking about now are definitely things that bothered me every time I've seen it. I, yep. totally, I totally felt like that was the biggest explosion ever. That? Yeah. That it maybe it was how it was filmed or it was all spread out or whatever, but right. It just say a, it wasn't impressive. And the, the Derek Meddings explosions on Thunderbirds have more impact than that did. Well, I know um, if if you had actually been there, I'm sure it would have been quite forceful. Oh, and everything. I'm sure. Oh, yeah. But it doesn't. Yeah. It just doesn't come across on film. Yeah, because they didn't. They have to like warn everybody that lived in the 50 mile radius of that part of the desert that they were going to do this and don't mm-hmm. worry about the big boom and stuff. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it just does not come over. Um, mm-hmm. at all um, alright so yeah we get Bond getting into the helicopter and he says it's not over yet um, but Alan is wishing it was so <sighs> yeah it's not over yet alright so let's get to our let's wrap this sucker up let's get to our final act here in okay. I guess in London right yep god I hope we're to London finally 
Yeah, we are in London, okay, uh, and we're getting to the uh, Hild- Hildebrand Rare Bookstore. Love yeah. the reference. Yeah, nice. Um, oh, and guess what? MI6 has got a safe house. Don't you think Bond should have used that in Skyfall? Um, Because apparently he knows it exists because he's there. Yeah. yeah. And then we get uh, get Madeline uh, deciding to walk away because she can't go back to this life again. Um, Again, I didn't find any real emotion in that scene. And she just kind of walks down the street, which was at night, which was weird. I'm like, just hang around and get a cab or something. You're just going to wander off into some random neighborhood and... And they let her. They know, they, they know that they've got all these, you know, she's got all these secrets and stuff, and she knows all about this organization and quantum and Spectre, and they just let her wander off. Yeah, that was weird. Wouldn't they Wouldn't they have called somebody and said, take her to MI6 and we'll debrief? Yeah, what about a debrief, guys? Or at least um, a bodyguard for a little while with villains running yeah. around. Yeah. So yeah. we'll let her walk off. Because, again, they're setting up her coming back and helping him, but... They, it's once again, it's the it's the it's the characters in service to the plot. That's what I was going to say. I knew I was going to remember this. As you mentioned earlier, it's like um, Star Trek Into Darkness with Khan. That's exactly what it is. In both cases, it, it this this movie has a very strong vibe of what's his name that 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 wrote Prometheus and and co-wrote Into Darkness. Um, the guy that was the showrunner for Watchmen. But when he did those. He has a very strong track record of writing the characters to fit the plot rather than the plot to fit the characters. And it always comes across because people do things that make no sense other than the story needs them to do it. That happens all through that Star Trek movie. It happens all through Prometheus. And it happens all through this movie. And it annoys me as a writer, and you I'm sure as a writer, to death because it feels so artificial. Right. I mean, all she's been basically here is being set up to be the damsel in distress. In the mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. Um, I did like the 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 the, the car smash coming out uh, with Bond and M in the car and the the truck. Yeah. The cat truck comes first time I saw that, that made me jump. Uh, yeah, that was good. <laughs> uh, that was good. I like the fact that M escapes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they go back to look for M and he's empty. I think that's that's cool. Um, um, and then we get. Uh, this is where we get the divergent two storylines. We get Bond at, as you said, is at the MI6 headquarters, which has been wired for demolition. Um, though surprisingly, they've actually left one of the riverboats in the basement dock. That's very convenient. Um, I, and this is actually one of the areas where I didn't make a note about the, the score. I think Newman set up a, a, a repetitive score here, um, music cue here, which I think was meant to reflect the passing of time like a clock. And then ramp up the tension, you know, to ramp up the tension. Mm-hmm. But to me, it, it just became like a metronome. It was, it was just like, just repeat, repeat. But it was flat, and it just became very tedious. And it actually, to me, undermined the scene and actually took any tension away hmm. from it. Um, so, um, and then we get the the parallel storyline of M confronting C as Q hacks into the security system. Um, I loved the, the dialogue and the fight between M and C. I thought that was really good. Um, so. Um, but again, it comes to the end that it's Q that saves the world while Bond's actually just saving the girl, which seems weird. So, mm-hmm. um, so we get Bond shooting at the bulletproof glass and we get the reveal of Blofeld with the scar. Um, mm-hmm. By the way, I think this the shooting at the bulletproof glass with the guy behind it and you get in the pattern on it, I think was done way much, much, much better in the first ever episode of The Man from Uncle. <laughs> 
the, Vul- the Vulcan Affair. Watch the watch the opening sequence for the first e- the Vulcan Affair on on YouTube. Um, okay, that's done way better um, than it is here. Um, but again, we're just getting a recycling of ideas from other Bond movies, other shows. My, this is where I've got the note. There should always be a you know a wow. I haven't seen that moment um, in in a Bond movie, and I just don't get it in in any of these. It's all recycling stuff from other other things, uh, primarily other Bond movies. Um, all right, and then we get the mag- the third magic bullet where Bond brings down a helicopter from about a quarter of a mile in front of him with one shot fired from a handgun while on a speeding boat. I, I know he fires four or five times at it and hits it, but then we get the one magic bullet that hits the engine. Yeah, I've complained about this a bunch in the past, and I'm just like, you know, I kept thinking, how else would you do it? And I don't have an answer, so I'm just going to have to let this one go, honestly. I mean, I there should have been a better way to do it, unless he had a bazooka in his pants and he whooped that Well, out. the thing is, he, he's, just, he's on the... I mean, the, the MI6 riverboat being there is very convenient, but maybe have something that's a bit more heavy artillery on that mm. boat, like a machine gun or something. Yeah, that, that's true. So we get the crash on the bridge. And uh, to, to me, this whole thing was so anticlimactic. Blofeld's crawling away, getting arrested. The on-the-nose visual, OM's at one end of the bridge, Madeline's at the other. I have to make a decision. What am I going to do? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> um, it was just so, so on-the-nose. Yeah. I don't know. Really did hit us over the head with it. I agree, but uh, you know, I, yeah, I've complained about the the shooting down the helicopter enough. I'm not going to go there. I still don't understand what what the particular. I, I mean, I I certainly would have run off with Leah Sadu, but I'm not quite sure why James Bond runs off with Mr. White's daughter here. That that again, it's we're told oh he's fallen in love with her, but we don't really get that. I don't think. I can think of 30 Bond girls off the top of my head he had more reason to run off with than her. But that again, I'm glad he did because I like her a lot. I just don't quite get it story-wise, you know, in, in continuity-wise. But um, I did like that he kind of ends the movie by tossing the gun over the side and going off with her in front of him. So you get the sense that as things come to an end, the double O program maybe coming back hopefully but without him and that seems like a really good setup for how the next one's going to start right where you have all mm-hmm. new he's gone and you're going to have all new double o's in a brand new double o program and and he doesn't really fit into it anymore you know if he has any desire to come back to it so that's yeah i, I mean it, the, the new one starts off with the fact he's been retired for five years and yeah yeah like, yeah I do like the coder. I sort of like the coder at the end with Q's lab when the lift descends and the doors open and Bond walks out to the opening strains of the Bond theme. That's mm. pretty cool. I like that. Yeah. Um, and then we get the cut to the DB5 being restored and him driving off with Madeline in the passenger seat, and we get the full Bond theme. Um, yeah, I'm not so sure about that, but I did. I did like the the appearance in, in Q's lab. I thought that was pretty good. So Yeah, that was cute. The end. What did you think about how they did the whole bit at the end with the bombs in the old building and everything? I, Like I said uh, with me, uh, that that's one of those things where I, I would have liked to have done something better. I'm just not sure what they could have done. They, they at least did set that up a little bit. I know. It was all a bit Dudley Doolittle, you know, with the dam- mm-hmm. mustache twirling with the damson in this in exactly. bit. I thought they could have at least done something with the, because, you know, he gave him the choice of, you know, either you can run away or you can save the girl. 
I would have liked to have, if they were going to do something, the thing where you've got the impossible choice scenario. You know, there's two things. You can save this person and that person, but you don't have the time to save both. Maybe it was Madeline and Moneypenny. I don't know. But there was something where, you know, Bond's choice was not him or somebody else. It was like, there are these two things. You just don't have the time. In theory, you don't have the time to save them both. Of course, he would save them both. But you know what I mean? You've got that double jeopardy type thing of the impossible choice. Yeah. I think that would have played better than just that. Well, you can save the girl or run away and save yourself. Mm-hmm. That just didn't ring true. I... So actually, one one interesting thing about this. Mm-hmm. The only people who died in this movie were the bad guys. Oh. Nope. I had never really thought about it before, but I was doing the research. No allies of Bond or innocent characters were killed in this. The only people who died were members of Spectre. Wow. That's unusual, isn't it? Yeah. That is interesting. Huh. Okay. Well, cool. <laughs> Just, I didn't notice that. I'd... No, I didn't until I was doing the research. I was like, oh, yeah. We had no sacrificial lamb. No. I mean, I mean, no. unless you think Monica Belushi dies off screen later, which is possible. Maybe. Yeah, but... Uh... Well, Felix isn't doing his job if that's the case. So. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. That's true. All right. So I'm actually going to hand over my final observation of thought to uh, a, a gentleman called Piers Brosnan. Oh. So the, his, this, this was his thought on Spectre. I found this quote. He said, I thought it was too long. The story was kind of weak. It could have been condensed. It kind of went on too long. It really did. It was neither fish nor fowl. It was neither Bond nor born. Wow. He, usually the Bonds are all very complimentary of each other, you know? So, that surprises me. So I thought that was a good summary, so I'm going to sign out with that. <laughs> <laughs> That's, that surprises me, but no, I, I guess I don't disagree. I, I, As I said, it was too long or either it was too short. I would take either one. I would take longer or shorter over that. All right. Well, I reckon uh, we've, we've set our piece. I'm sure we'll get some interesting feedback on this one. I don't think that people out there loved and adored this one the way that the, a lot of them do Skyfall. But I do think it has its fans, and I'm going to be curious to hear what people have to say once they've digested what we had to say. So I guess uh, on Her Majesty's Secret Podcast, we'll, we will return. And next time when we return, I guess it will be to do, if we don't do something between now and then, it'll be to do No Time to Die. I'm not going to call it No Time to Kill this time. <laughs> I called it No Time to Kill last <laughs> oh, time. Oh, you just reminded me. We actually, there's one thing we have to do. We Let's, did promise we would do it, mm-hmm. which is answer, uh, was it Joseph's question on Twitter? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. What was his question? I don't remember. Uh, would this movie Spectre have been any better if Waltz wasn't Blofeld and the bad guy organization wasn't Spectre? I was looking forward to answering that question, and I think that I partially did in the sense that um, because it was Blofeld and Spectre, I went into it the first time with all these expectations. And if that Mm -hmm. hadn't been the case, if he had just been another Silva-type character with another organization like that, at least it wouldn't have been disappointing into me to me in the sense that it wasn't what I was wanting. But that being said, the thing that's disappointing to me now about it being about it being Blofeld Inspector is that it's a disappointing movie that has now wasted Blofeld Inspector, and they're probably shot. I mean, I know we're going to get a cameo, but I feel like Blofeld Inspector are now shot for the next thirty years because of this movie, and it wasn't awesome. Okay, I would say. I think my thing is partly agreeing with you that that it was a missed opportunity, and I think that's the thing with me. I think yeah. it would it have worked if it was if it was another bad guy, and 
another organization, uh, whether they could have done Quantum again or something like that. Yeah, I think it could have worked and they could have done something really good with it. I think trying to force fit Spectre into the story just didn't really work. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the biggest thing for me is if they were going to do Spectre, they should have done what was in that Sam Mendes quote earlier, that they should mm-hmm. have really made it different and done something totally new and totally distinctive and made it a different specter and a different Blofeld than anything we'd ever come across before. And I think they just, to your point, missed the opportunity to do that and wasted wasted the opportunity to do that. Yeah, because Mendez would much rather rehash things from 30 years ago than, than, than push them forward. I don't understand that, but that's what he keeps doing. And it's why I'm glad he's not directing them again. I was so glad when he isn't the director of the third one of the of the next one because of the fifth one because i just don't like he like you said he makes great looking movies but i just a lot of his choices i just don't agree with so and i think you're the same way so yep certainly on these two movies definitely all right well now on her magic secret podcast is going to get on out of here we will uh it will return and we will do no time to die coming up in april i think we'll probably have a thing or two maybe between here and there Otherwise, we will see you then. Thanks a bunch, Alan. We'll see you soon. See everybody soon and enjoy the new Bond movie, everybody. And we look forward to talking about it in a couple of months. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment production.